I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which I create today, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Dearest you, now the thing to know about me is I'm not really a procrastinator. I try to come at life lightly, which means avoiding creating any friction or resistance as much as possible. And that often means not thinking about my to-do list and instead just getting on with doing it. But this episode, no. (laughs) No. An entirely different story. I actually flagged it five months ago, and yet here I am, the week it's due live, finally sitting down to produce it. Episode 100 of Offline the Podcast. 100 times I've had the privilege of holding someone's story, and 100 times it's been my honor to serve Dearest You. If you've been listening for the past three and a half years, my gosh, you will have heard Offline's evolution, but you'll have also heard my own. And I think that's why I've been avoiding producing this episode, because like anyone, I don't want to go back and meet those past versions of myself. Like, what did I say back then? And what did I think was right or worthy or insightful? When I really get to thinking about it, I guess I didn't want to feel embarrassed or ashamed. And that made me think about my favorite Ira Glass quote. It's a quote I've had stuck near my computer screen since 2012, which I'm just realizing is a decade. And it's the sense of perspective that has given me the courage to continue creating, to continue turning on the microphone and hitting record to continue putting what I have to give out into the world and hoping you'll say yes to it and yes to me. So I'm going to read that quote out to you now. Nobody tells this to people who are beginners. I wish someone told me. All of us who do creative work, we get into it because we have good taste. But there is this gap. For the first couple of years, you make stuff. It's just not that good. It's trying to be good. It has potential, but it's not. But your taste, the thing that got you into the game, is still killer. And your taste is why your work disappoints you. A lot of people never get past this phase. They quit. Most people I know who do interesting creative work went through years of this. We know our work doesn't have this special thing that we want it to have. We all go through this. And if you're just starting out and you are still in this phase, you've got to know it's normal. And the most important thing you can do is do a lot of work. Put yourself on a deadline so that every week you finish one story. It is only by going through a volume of work that you will close that gap and your work will be as good as your ambitions. 
and I took longer to figure out how than anyone I've met. It's going to take a while. It's normal to take a while. You've just got to fight your way through. Mmm, Ira. For many of us audio storytellers, Ira kind of is the bar. So to celebrate Offline's 100th episode, we're going to honour this growing body of work. We're going to honour the volume and we're going to honour you and I showing up every week and doing our work. You know Offline is ours, but I want to dedicate this episode to you. I've got over a thousand DMs from you sharing the shifts you've had, sharing how these honest conversations and Offline's mission has changed not only the shape of your life, but the way you're in the world. And here's the thing. It's actually all you. I like the path, but you're the one who walks it and that takes courage. So thank you for being here. Thank you for gifting me your precious time and your awareness. Thank you for letting me in so fully so I can help you on your way. For this 100th episode, we're going to be taking a trip down memory lane and revisiting some of the most powerful and potent wisdom we've heard on the podcast. And we're going to start with the woman who showed up for me until I knew how to show up for myself, Jeannie Burke. She's the founder of Venustus Body Lab in Sydney's Paddington. So a little bit of background, we recorded this episode in May 2018, which was about four months before it was released. At that time, I was beginning a series of conversations that would eventually end in me moving on from that big publishing job. Jeannie had the full context that I was thinking about resigning, but also that I didn't know what was next. All I knew was I could no longer do what I was doing because it felt so out of integrity. And I think that's been one of the biggest lessons I've learned over the last handful of years is that when we choose to explore our essence and the truth of what we are, we're actually choosing change. Once we know, we can't unknow. After Jeannie and I recorded, I went on to record with beautiful Elle and Carmen and Paula, Zoe, Eleanor, Sarah, all of the gals. And then I decided it was time to take a short holiday. And Tony and I went to the States so that I could get some space and some clarity. And we also wanted to see how we felt in New York and LA at that time, with a look to maybe moving there to work for a few years. That obviously never happened because you honored this work and these conversations. I launched a podcast and you literally gave me a business. I distinctly remember approving this episode during a car ride from LA to Palm Springs. And after I listened to it through, I gave Tony my headphones and I asked him to listen. And Tony cried at the end. And that's when I knew that this might be something quite special. So let's go back and have a listen. I've chosen the part of our conversation that went on to become really offline's mission. So thank you for being here. And I hope you love this trip down memory lane. 
It's just we have women, you know, where everything's changing for us mm. and we can leave our children but feel guilty but be at work. Wherever we are, we're often not there. So we leave our babies with someone else and we feel guilty about that, but we want a career. And there's not a lot of work with that. Well, there probably is, but not a lot of people are doing it. So it's accessing how to help with guilt, how to help with heartache, how to help with all those things. And shoulders and that sort of upper back area are often carrying the weight of the world. So you're carrying the big job, you're carrying the big, you know, all the big things. I'm carrying all the things. Yeah. And then, you know, you can go back into the family and what you carried with them if you've got, you know, anything. So for anyone. So I think part of part of the work has also been separating my true self, which is the whole reason for us to be sitting down talking today from the, I guess, character of Alison that is shiny digital publisher, really good at her job, leads all the women, you know, is always really inspiring. And that that is a lot to carry. To carry, but I absolutely feel authentic in it. Mm-hmm. But part of what I've been challenged with over the past few years especially is that whole piece on when you're sitting in your true self. I couldn't Without the labels, I didn't actually know right. who I was. Right. Beautiful. You know? Yeah. Like how beautiful is that? Yeah. And so many women will feel exactly the same. Mm. And how do we integrate both? And if we take away something, we can still be the same. Mm. And we can have different versions, which are completely fine. We can have our home personal version, which is going to be, of course, different to our work mm. version. Because you've you've taught me that about the energy and intention I bring when I'm on my way to work yes, and then when I get to my front door. Really important. Mm. So we want to have energy at work and often people will say that when we're working as women, when we're in these jobs and in these positions where we're leading other women or we're leading companies, so many CEOs, that we're often in a masculine energy. And it doesn't mean we're not feminine, we're not truly ourselves, but we're doing more masculine work. We're leading and we love it mm. and it's great and we thrive in it. I love it. You know, it's fantastic. But when I'm at home, that energy and that person doesn't serve me in my personal life. And I explain this to women because it's easier if I give my example that they want me to be lover, mother, mm. carer, not genie boss. Yeah. So I've learnt how to shift that energy with podcasts, with uh, intention, with music, with so many different things. And I share that with, I you share have. everything, everything I've What's that found. great one you share with Live me? Awake. Live Awake. Everyone yeah. needs A to go A letter to and... the women of the world. Incredible. Six minute and you can go there just Incredible. about. Incredible. Yeah. Everyone has to go and yeah. listen to Go and to donate that. before you download. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, yeah. Yes, Don't you think? Do that. I like to think it's really important to always work ethically mm. and give to those who give to others. So if we can all give back to whoever we're, wherever we're using someone else's work, it's really important to do that. Mm. And I advise women when they have issues and they're telling me whether it's specific or non-specific, I can work in either way. It doesn't, it doesn't phase either way, but about remembering to work ethically, be ethical, be moral, do the right thing. And if you're not, or if you haven't that day, then 
go back and apologise and own that Mm. and see what that looks like Mm. and change that. Oh, Jeannie, she lands really powerful knowledge in such a lighthearted and joyful way. She's soon to open a brand new space next door to the one that she's been serving us in for 30 years, and she's literally building it from the ground up, and there's even crystals in the soil. Thank you, Jeannie, for showing me a level of care and kindness and generosity that I am yet to experience again. Okay, next up is the always potent Natalia Benson. So I actually met Natalia at a dinner in LA, which was hosted by beautiful Bianca Chia of Sportlux. I was leading Who What Wear Australia at the time, and Natalia was the resident astrologer for the US edition of the brand. Bianca sat us together, and I remember I was like, oh, M.G. Natalia Benson. Act cool, Alison. (laughs) And she's, of course, the sweetest, softest creature. And we hit it off and really haven't looked back. I think my episode with Natalia marked a real turning point for offline. The wisdom she shared really cracked us open, especially me in this particular part, about my deserving right to earn. This honest conversation is the very thing that prompted me to start a donation page, which funded season two. And then I started coaching and the rest is history. I still share her advice with anyone who needs to hear it today. The more money you make, the more people you can help. So it's time to get earning. The difficulty I've had is 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 actually like thinking about things like my financial future and stuff, you know, because it's like even as I think about this podcast, I've felt so um, grateful for amazingly generous brands who want to be around this space and what I'm doing. But then I go, I don't know if I can monetize people's stories and pain and journeys, you know, like – it's really difficult to think about, well, for you even like spirituality and mysticism as a business, you know, because I think as women we're so perhaps programmed to not be like financially driven in that way. How do you think about that? And how did you think about that early as you were starting your business, you know, because you kind of, you want to give it? because you want everyone to be on the journey, but at the same time, like, I've got to pay my rent, you know, I've got to pay for the production of all of this stuff. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing, like, you know, I've been, uh, I started my first business when I was 19 and it wasn't so much because I like wanted to like be a jewelry designer. It was because I, I wanted on a deeper level to, to develop myself and to know what it was like to create money on my own terms and to get paid and to receive, um, receive money. Yeah. Just get, yeah, I guess I'll just say get paid. We could just leave it and get paid. (laughs) I have a lot of Gemini in my chart so I can always like add on more words and I'm like, let's just keep it simple to to get paid for something that I was creating and doing and, 
and bringing that was my own. And for me, I've never had trouble monetizing Mm -hmm. my work ever because number one, I just wrote a post about this yesterday. Women deserve to be powerful. Uh, Sensitive, spiritually inclined women deserve to be powerful. Women who are purveying the mystical arts or healing, we deserve to be able to live the way we want to live. We be able, we just like, if you are offering any amount of service or light in this world, no matter what you're doing, even if you're, you know, working for a nonprofit or you're working at a beauty company, like, I don't care. Like if you are helping people on this planet live and breathe a little easier or feeling more expressed and realized you fucking deserve to not worry. And, and I, you know, my whole journey around money and value and inherent self-worth has been devastatingly hard for me. And it's something I only got the hang of last summer. And then it was like, as soon as I got the hang of it, the universe just flowed. I mean, it blows my mind. I won't even get into like the specifics unless you want me to, but it blows my mind. And it just reminds me that when just like we deserve it. And I think that any successful person in this world, whether they are doing like, you know, they're purveying like GMO food or, you know, they're like a successful whatever on some level, they think they deserve what they have. And so I try to teach women who are in the mystical arts, who are sensitive, who are trying to create a livelihood out of consciousness or spirituality or personal development that you fucking deserve it. You deserve to have money. You deserve to do well. Cause I think that when we can really believe and tap into the fact that we do deserve it, the universe loves that energy because it's needed right now. It's needed. There's a need for all of this. Otherwise you wouldn't have felt the calling to do it. I think that, you know, and I can speak to this, because throughout my 20s, I did move in and out of uh, jobs. I had one corporate job, but I did move in and out of all kinds of work and all kinds of jobs while I was building. And throughout that journey, I was consistently working on my worth around like, can I charge for this? Can I charge more for this? Can I monetize this? And at the end of the day, I was like, yes, because the more money I'm making, the more people I'm helping, like the more people, like I want to be as big as fucking possible because I want people to get to hear this. And I, and I know in my heart and my soul why I'm here. So I want to help. And if you have that on any level of what you're doing, anything you're doing, if you have that in you, I want you to be powerful. I want you to reach the tip top, tip top of whatever you believe is possible. And mindset is so much a part of it. And I think that, you know, this conversation is so prevalent and powerful right now. And it's, of course you, this is your cancerian intuition. (laughs) Uh, This is a, this is a conversation I've been having in my courses all week with all of my women, all my students, and many of my clients is this energy of confidence and deservingness. And um, yeah, so I'll just leave it at that, but that's my opinion about that.
Okay, on to part two of my honest conversation with Natalia and the part where she gave us all a very powerful call to action to forgive ourselves, to let ourselves up off the proverbial mat. Okay, so I had a funny experience recently where I like said something to like a very powerful person and they had a bit of a reaction to me, but they like kind of let it go. I didn't, it was sort of like an, it was very benign. It was like an accident and sort of like I have mercury and Aries. So I can just like say like, just really joyfully and like in a silly, playful, childish way. And I was like, oh, well, and I said this thing. I'm not even fucking say what it was. It was like embarrassing. But <laughs> they were like, oh, okay. And kind of looked at me, but then they like let it flow. And I remember I got in my car and I felt like my heart was broken. Like I felt ashamed of myself. And I was driving, um, I was driving on the PCH and I was like going in and just going in on myself. You know, those moments where you're just like, oh, like blah, 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 blah. An attack. And it's an attack. You're, you're breaking your own heart. And I stopped myself and I was like, I forgive you. I forgive you. Like, I forgive you. This is so not a big deal. Like, did you, what did you mean by what you said? And I said, well, this is what I meant. And it was coming from this really deep like place of wanting to connect and being silly and like loving. And, and I said, you know, where you were coming from, I forgive you. It's okay. And that woke something up really powerfully in me. And every time I'd start to feel that heartbreak, come on of that attack mode, I'd say, I forgive you. I'd go in front of the mirror. I teach mirror work a lot with my clients and in my work, I go in front of the mirror and I'd be like, I forgive you. I forgive you. I forgive you. I love you. I accept you. I forgive you. The more I feel like we can utter those words to self, I think it helps. I have, I don't hold grudges with people, but I never forget, you know, and I've God, I'm the worst. (laughs) (laughs) You know, our our emotional memory is like profound. I know. And I've dated so many cancer guys. And later on, they're like, Natalia, you already did this. I was like, I know, but I love you. I'm so sorry. So it's like, it's always like this. It's a good reminder, like to remember forgiveness of self. It's the Mm -hmm. first place to go. And such great practical advice because it's like, just say it, just tell yourself, you forgive yourself and let yourself up off the proverbial mat. You know what I mean? I'm always telling myself that I'm like, let yourself up off the mat, sis, like you did your best. And even like when people, if I get like a, like an email from a client that's not happy or a comment on Instagram or just something, I just instantly go to that place. I forgive you. I'm doing my best. And I always take, and this is just a side thing of like a success principle, but I always take full responsibility for whatever it is. And I think that that helps, like whether it's something you need to forgive yourself, like with an, uh, something small or big, like, can you just take responsibility for where you can and just forgive the rest? And I think that that creates a really big reverberation in your life and your consciousness when you're willing to just accept yourself, take accountability and responsibility, and then extend forgiveness. Because even in the most challenging of, of situations with other people, when we're being asked to forgive someone that maybe we don't want to, where can we take accountability in our own experience um, 
and just try to move through it because when we don't forgive, and this is like the reason I brought up the whole concept of forgiving other people. Cause like I said, that hasn't always been, I used to be the queen of the, the conversation replay in my head. And all of a sudden I'm like fist clenched and like angry for no reason, heart like on fire. And I'm like, Whoa, what the, who the fuck was I just talking to? You know? And then I was like, Oh, that's where that, like that, that, grace of forgiveness comes in because mm-hmm. it's not affecting that person or maybe it is I don't know it's I have no idea all I have right now is my own thoughts so how can I tune in and turn on and say you know what can I do for myself in this moment can I offer forgiveness to self accountability to self and then can I forgive this other this person or this situation mm-hmm. and even though that's hard and it's a hard concept to traverse because there's a million you know, different examples and different situations. But I think working with that energy with self is, is, is very powerful and can be very liberating. Like I'd said earlier. Now onto the technique that changed the game for me, Vedic meditation, a little backstory after I launched the podcast and finished up at my full-time job, I was deep in exploration mode. You know that period of time when you feel like you're seeing lots of healers and lots of teachers, trying to find the ones that feel true and create that kind of shift in your life and existence. So that was me at this time. My friend Amanda saw a palm reader and found him to be really spot on. So of course I booked I had to send pictures of my hands over email, so the front and back of my hands, and then he called me to do the reading. He said lots of really illuminating and also some scary things, including something to do with my mum's health, which did kind of eventuate, but in a different way. But one of the key things I took away from his reading was that a teacher was going to enter my life soon. And that I shouldn't think too hard about it, that I should just say yes. A few weeks later, I got a DM from Matt Ringrose. And he had said that his daughter-in-law, beautiful Irene, listens to the podcast and she's also actually a bit of an industry colleague. And she suggested that we meet because she thought that I might benefit from learning more about the Vedic view. So, like the good spiritual explorer that I am, I did what the palm reader said and I said yes. I went to his intro talk the following week and truly the rest is history. Matt and I guess more specifically Vedic meditation changed the course of my life and my work. Or I guess a more Vedic way to describe that is that through learning to meditate and studying this body of knowledge... I began to acknowledge what I am and that informs who I am and how I show up in the world. So after Matt initiated me, I literally inserted myself into his life (laughs) and basically forced a friendship onto him, which I do for some reason. Um, But I also acknowledge that it is part of my process when I'm trying to understand something or someone is I kind of move into this shadow mode where I literally start to shadow people and I immerse myself and surround myself with the topic or the subject. 
um, he was very gracious and he let me in and we've remained really close friends ever since. And Matt honestly has helped me navigate some of the more intense moments over the last few years, um, including my second miscarriage and fertility challenges, my mum's cancer diagnosis, really difficult business situations that have been quite like layered and nuanced that require a little bit more than kind of strategic knowledge. So yeah, and I have played a small but you know, I know meaningful role in developing his brand and his business. And we actually produced the first season of his podcast, Very Vedic, together, which was a lot of fun. But back to offline. So I'd had this idea brewing to evolve the podcast in season two to include teachers and healers. Jeannie's episode is still one of my most downloaded. And I knew that this body of work wasn't just about getting to know the people behind the Instagram accounts and who they were outside of the labels, I knew it was destined to serve in a deeper way. And so I really believe that this episode with Matt kind of marks a bit of a turning point for the podcast and offline's mission overall. I also want to admit that having an honest conversation about Vedic meditation and this kind of knowledge system literally eight weeks after I learned about it (laughs) was pretty ambitious, but I've realized recently that that's what I love most about offline and us as a community is ambitious inquiry in the pursuit of the truth about what we are, why we're here and what the fuck it is we're supposed to be doing with our time and our energy and our resources. So we recorded at the original Bondi Meditation Center, which was actually Matt's old house in Bondi Beach. He had this beautiful upstairs area where he used to teach. You know, it had the ocean view and the deck and the cozy seats. And I actually remember, I guess, my small self thinking, wow, there must be some money in Vedic meditation. (laughs) But anyway, it turns out he made his money in wine sales before becoming a meditation teacher. But this is a tangent. So we meditated before we recorded and I was really nervous that I barely kind of transcended. I had a lot of tightness in my throat um, and I think ultimately I knew I was a bit out of my depth, but I also knew from beautiful Ira's advice that this is what it's all about. Just keep creating because it's in the creative process itself that we refine our skills and our talents. I also think Matt was a bit nervous. It was his first ever podcast recording, I think. And we both knew what we wanted to achieve with this episode, which was ultimately to get more people interested in this effortless technique and hopefully wanting to learn it for themselves. Okay, so there's two parts of this honest conversation I want to revisit. And I think these are two of the biggest lessons he taught us in the episode. First up, how we experience this particular technique and why it's so transformative for those who choose to practice it twice a day. Before we learn to meditate, for example, um, or have some other spiritual practice which gets in touch with the true self, we identify with, we tend to, I could say, but really it's just we identify with an external version of what we are, externally referenced. So what have we 
achieved? What have we failed at? What do we look like? What, importantly, what have other people told us we are? What does society tell us we are? All these things go to form a picture and how we're received by society or not well received by society. All these things go to form a picture which makes up our impression of ourself. So the Vedic, the Vedic view, oh, we're coming to the babushka doll. We're going to have to. Do the doll, okay. do the doll. All right, just hang in there, everyone. <laughs> it's going to make sense. Just stick with me. Okay, so from the Vedic view, there is the... We go from the outside layers to the inside more subtle. I wish I had filming you. You're doing the hand movement. I'm doing the hands here. Yeah. So what happens is we we go through the more um, gross levels to the more subtle level. So we hear from somebody what they think we are. It goes in through the ears, through the senses, and then it gets to the intellect. And the intellect acts as like a bouncer. It's a bouncer to information before the information goes into our ego and defines what we are so let's say that somebody said to you Alison you're a bad girl (laughs) that comes in through the ears in through the hearing then the the intellect's there standing at the door of the club which is the ego and it goes hang on let's have a look at this you're a bad girl yeah it looks around into the club doesn't seem to be anything saying you're not a bad girl you can go in you're a bad girl, goes into the ego and that starts to become part of your Mm self-identity. And let's say you hear that quite a bit. Every time you hear you're a bad girl, that comes in, the intellect looks around, oh yeah, so you're a bad girl kind of a club, that's the kind of clientele, in you go. And you're starting to get quite a strong self-identification if you're a bad girl. Then somebody says, you're a good girl. That comes in through the ears, through the senses, intellect sees that, you're a good girl, looks behind you, goes, no, I don't think so, it's not for you, this is not your place. It's not allowed in as part of your identity. You see how it's working? Mm -hmm. And this is how we build our identity. This is how we start to, this is who we start to believe we are. And then something very different happens when you learn to meditate, for example, with this technique. And what happens is this new thing comes in through the ears, initially through the ears, because when your teacher tells you in a mantra, and this sound goes in through the ears and then it sneaks past the bouncer. Yeah, and for the first time ever, it actually sneaks past the ego because it has no nothing to be intellectually understood, and then the ego flips to look inside, and inside it sees your true nature, and your true nature is pure consciousness with all those qualities, and then the mantra comes back out, and then it goes back in again. The ego flips round, and each time it flips round. Rather than looking to the outside for the first time for its identification, for the first time ever, it looks inside to the deeper state of you. And the deeper state of all of us is beautiful. The deeper state of all of us has the qualities of love, compassion, creativity, adaptability, all those good things. So they start to imprint subtly on the mind and you start to identify more with that and less than what, with what everyone else has told you you are. And then what starts to happen is because there's this new, deeper, truer information about what you are, those false ideas of what you are, because you're not really integrally a bad girl, can't coexist. So they start to be released from the ego's idea of itself. So we start to become more connected to our deeper, truer self. Mm -hmm. Is that just about made sense? Okay, next up is the part of this episode that I've probably had the most feedback on, 
how to make contact with our intuition, which in the Vedic view is something we call charm. So in any moment, there is something that nature wants us to do. And that thing that it wants us to do is the thing which is most evolutionary, this word that keeps coming up, most progressive for us and for everything else. So it's the best thing for us to do, the best role in that moment. I've got to give you a quick aside here because the best description I've heard of how this feels, although this is a very extreme example, but it's just a good story I need to tell you, is uh, to ever tell you about the guy who I met who became enlightened for 24 hours, 40 years ago, for one day. No. He became completely enlightened. It's a guy I know, it's a lovely guy, and um, he became completely enlightened. (laughs) So he was driving across a bridge and then suddenly it happened. And amongst the symptoms were that he was looking at the sky and he thought, oh, that sky looks very familiar. Why do I know that sky? I know it, I know it, which might seem a funny thing to say because it's the sky, but he goes, oh, it's me. And he realised he was looking at himself and he found it so beautiful. But also what he noticed is that in every moment, his words were there was a command. And the command was what, in his words, God wanted him to do. And he said that he wouldn't dream of doing anything other than that thing because it was so exquisitely fulfilling to do that. And that may have been simply to put his attention on somebody or go and buy a sandwich or whatever it happened to be. So the theory is... Um, let's say, that was his experience. Mm. The theory is that in every moment, there is something we should be doing. And when we start to settle the mind down, then there's this kind of like mildly pleasant, it's not always pleasant, it's a kind of complex area, but let's just say for now, there's a sense of something you want to do. It's like pulling a direction. Mm. There's like a bit of sprinkling of magic dust on one of the options. And very, very quickly, you feel like, oh, that's the thing I need to do. Now, what we're used to doing is using the intellect to decide what to do next. And the intellect isn't actually very good at this. It makes, it's just guessing because mm. it can't see into the future. Okay. But intuition apparently can on some level and it's showing us the way. And the knack to get is the ability to sense this kind of little tug in the direction and go with it rather than letting the intellect come, come in and go, oh, well, no, I don't know about this. I think I should ratify this decision and you you know, this is going to be anarchy if we just do this. You know, you're going to end up in chaos. Um, Actually, as you probably know, as you're listening to this, dear listener, when you have gone with your intuition, your gut, things have flown uh, flown fairly smoothly or much more smoothly. And what we tend to find is that as we move in the direction of charm, go with our gut more often, that things, um, things start to evolve in a way which brings us growth and progress. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a complex area because, as you rightly said, there is a shadow side of Mm. charm, which is desire with attachment. So if if you're not, let's say... So desire only exists with attachment? No. In this version that we're going to describe it. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, you could have, you know, but you could feel desire in a way which was divinely guided... But um, let's say for now we're talking about the opposite of charm would be desire with attachment. Um, so I want something really badly. I want something really badly. and it's. But that isn't necessarily because I've been meditating and I'm um, 
I'm in touch with what nature wants and therefore going with nature's plan. This could be simply something that's coming from my subconscious accumulations, something from within me that's based on some sense of lack or fear, something within my subconscious. And it's not really in my evolutionary interests or anyone else's for me to do that. And yet I feel attached to that thing. This is different. So the more we meditate, the more we can start to discern between the two. There's, this isn't. This might sound just like absolute madness, <laughs> but it's um, it's written about what's his name. The book Matt is about to refer to is Blink: The Power of Thinking Without Thinking by Malcolm Gladwell. It was published after the Tipping Point and before Outliers. Casual. But there's a book called Blink, which is a scientific examination of the fact that the first decision or cognition we come to in response to anything is actually usually ends up being the best one but we often ignore it and try and work it Mm. out so in summary following charm is a case of feeling that feeling that you should do and leaping before you look Mm. not examining it intellectually and if you don't like where you land you leap again and this is the process of going Mm. through life and eventually it starts off maybe a bit like riding a bike in that you're having to adjust left and right and i'm going down the hills i lean back a bit and all that quite consciously but after a while, just like riding a bike, it starts to become completely unconscious. You, you're just steered by the impulses without any actual dialogue around what you should be doing. Mm. You're just going to feel like, yeah, I'm doing this now and I'm doing that. And also not needing third-party input or validation or well, Yeah, because approval. you'd be relying on their state of consciousness. Yes. So if we're indulging this theory, we'd say that what would we go for somebody else's opinion or would we go for the opinion of cosmic intelligence itself? And that's what's giving you the really clever answers all the time. Mm. So a good description of it, my teacher Tom Knowles uses that the thing for us to do in any moment is actually the result of trillions of calculations throughout the whole universe. And all we see when we're in touch with charm is the answer on the calculator screen. So powerful. And this piece of knowledge is a really beautiful segue into the advice my next guest gave when I asked her where she started when it came to her own journey to making contact with her truth and living a full, whole and authentic life. Jericho Mandibur is many wonderful things, but we know her best for her intersectional and inclusive transmission of tarot. You have to check out her deck, Neo Tarot. It's very wonderful. She's also a talented creative coach. So here's Jericho on why true self-exploration will always call us back to ourselves and why we shouldn't let the corporatization of self-care stop us from honoring it in the ways that feels true for us. And most importantly, committing to giving ourselves the kind of care we both need and deserve. Yeah, well, I kind of, I just spent a lot of time on my own and it's really because I was in a low place Um, and I don't know if it had to be that way or has to be that way, but I think it, you know, without sounding like I'm promoting it, it was helpful at the time because I would never have given myself that much, yeah, silence and stillness just to kind of like, be with my thoughts um, and I've always been a huge journaler so I've just been like writing 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 um, and I was just kind of like 
speaking to myself, um, kind of like you were saying, I had negative voice in my head. I had the positive voice and I was just kind of spewing it all out onto the page as I always do. Um, and that was kind of enough for me to feel like, okay, you know, I'm starting to really, really consider how I can bring this into my life. Like I can't just have like this internal back and forth forever without like taking steps to, you know, change something before I felt like I was going to get any lower. So I really think it's important to just like not look externally too much. Um, And there's definitely a time and place for like reading books um, and speaking to other people and, you know, looking for like resources. Um, but it has to kind of start with yourself because if you're just kind of like taking a, a, a problem or a situation and layering on like, you know, self-help book and, and TED talk and blah, 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 you're not really giving yourself the opportunity to have that conversation with yourself. So yeah. I think it's really important just to start there and be like, what am I feeling right now? And that's something that I love using tarot for, but I also just love feeling it in my body, um, like listening to my kind of, yeah, higher self voice um, when I'm meditating and taking like a, a temperature gauge of like where I am and what's really going on and thinking about like, what do I want? And then what do I really want under that, you know, and what do I want under that? And like, where is this coming from? So just kind of feeling like you're in whatever way that works for you, like peeling the layers to where you're at and how you got there. And then, um, yeah, I think the the extension of that is like not being too attached to an outcome. So like you say, people are like, oh, I have to reinvent myself and I have to go from A to Z like overnight. And um, like, for example, like now I am, <laughs> now I'm a lawyer, but I really, really want to be like a healer. Like how can I do that in like under six months? <laughs> like yes. I totally understand the desire to um, reinvent yourself and to imagine yourself in this other place. Um, But they're just two different versions of this kind of like external measurement of success and happiness and what it means to feel like when I get to that place or when I do that thing, that's when I'm going to be happy. Instagram bio and it will say this. (laughs) Yeah. And like, then, you know, I'll be insert thing happy fulfilled you know whatever it is um so I think it's really really important to remember that like any spiritual teaching like worth its salt is going to tell you like you're exactly where you're meant to be like you are the you that you desire (laughs) um like you said before um it's about coming home to yourself it's not about reinventing yourself Mm. and wanting that thing, that image of, you know, success and happiness and coolness or whatever it is. Um, it's just your ego, like wanting to tell you that like, you can't do X, Y, and Z until you X, Y, and Z. And that's just like a complete, like an unworkable equation that's setting you up for failure. Mm, Fuck. That's such good advice. Thank you. you. (laughs) Um, I want to talk about the wellness industry and I guess like, you know, self-care as a a term now, you know, you've got some people who are like, oh God, self-care, yeah, here we go. Mm-hmm. What is your, um? how do you think about that? I mean, it's the space that you're in and certainly I'm in, 
in a big way as well. Like how do you respond to people who maybe give you a bit of an eye roll? Because I know it's becoming like a bit of a commodity, isn't it? Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, and I totally get the criticism um, of the kind of like the corporatization or like the, the self-care as a marketing tool thing um, because that's real, you know, and I'll, I'll see that in like sponsored Instagram posts and I like all the time. Mm-hmm. It'll be like self-care Sunday and it's a picture of like, I don't know, like fit tea or some or like some expensive product. Um, so, yeah, it's it's the kind of problem with every word that like enters the mainstream. Um and I totally encourage people, like, if self-care feels, like, awkward or, like, squeamish to you, like, use something else. Just use, like, self-development or, like, self-nurturing or um, whatever. Just don't even give it a name. <laughs> like, you know it when you do it. So mm-hmm. that can be enough as well. Um, so, yeah, I think it's it's an interesting time because self-care, like, needs to be spoken about, right? It's really important that, like, it reaches as many people as possible because nobody is like more or less deserving of self-care than anybody else in the world. Like our experience of life, our traumas, our um, emotional well-being, like they're all incredibly precious and that's something that like we all deserve is to nourish ourselves, you know, Mm -hmm. and to care about ourselves and to take care of our basic needs. Um, And as women, like when none of us are encouraged to really do that, like we might have more resources than the person next to us or something like that, but that doesn't mean that (laughs) we're treating ourselves the way that we should by any stretch. So I think it's kind of like just one of those things where you have to take the good with the bad. Like when something gets really popular, that's really amazing because then more people can know about it but then it also immediately just gets (laughs) co-opted by all these other people that want to sell it um and unfortunately I think that's just the way that everything goes and to dismiss like self-care wholesale because you know oh that's like what makeup brands do to like get you to buy like facial creams or whatever um is just kind of you know like dismissing a really important conversation. So I think you can critique the way that it's kind of sold without like throwing the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. Um, And it can be difficult, but I think it's really important to kind of like, like um, flesh out like this kind of murkiness and have this conversation where we can kind of say, these are the complications and this is an okay thing to talk about, you know, like we're, we're all kind of right. Like yeah. nobody's really coming at it in with, mm. with like bad intentions. It's just that it's one of those things that like we have to kind of figure out as we go along because it's so, um, it's really new that more people are, are hearing about it, like as a, as a term and as a thing that we can all like benefit from. So it's kind of like learn as you go and like not be afraid to like make mistakes and feel like you have to um, like interrogate how you're doing things again and again. And it's just all learning. Now, I can't move on from this episode with Jericho without acknowledging and airing one of the most impactful moments, truly, of my professional career as a creator and a writer. When I interviewed Jericho to be my guest on Offline, 
she graciously accepted but sent her acceptance alongside an observation and I suppose a bit of a challenge. She shared with me that she had observed my guest selection was perhaps not representative of all voices, cultures and lived experiences and she was right. It was something I was acknowledging in my private conversations, but not publicly. We had a really meaningful exchange about it on email, and I shared with her the progress I was making and what was coming, and I asked for her feedback and her help. So if you sit in the seat of the privileged and you are creating or facilitating or hosting, I hope hearing her advice helps you move into action. And so broadly, you know, what, what as creators and creatives, what do we need to be doing to be, I guess, cultivating a more inclusive wellness industry? Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you so much for bringing that up. That's like so sweet of you. Um, I think it's just doing stuff like, like we did, like in that moment, like having a hard conversation mm. and being look at you know, I know this is awkward, like full, full transparency, like this is a hard conversation to have. Um, but like, how can we think about like being more inclusive? It's it's really like that simple. And somebody else asked me recently um, what I thought about how to make the wellness space more inclusive. Um, and the best thing I could say was just listening. Mm. And I think that's what you're going to be doing, you know, bringing in guests and having them holding space for them to like tell them tell their story and just listen and then have the audience listen and there's a a ripple effect that that creates whereby like we're just um like hearing from more and more and more people um Mm. which is what it's all about you know because um people of like different identities and backgrounds like have their own stories and like they they're they don't need like an interpretation or like for someone to like speak on their behalf. Like they're already having those conversations. We're just not necessarily like hearing them um, because we're not necessarily like actively looking to, for where they're happening and to hear them. So I think it's just kind of like stepping aside a little, like everybody really just needs to like step aside a little and let other people have the floor, so to speak. Um, Which I think is what like, you know, like interview format podcasts are really, really good for, um, but also just little things like following people on Instagram um, who are really just kind of like sharing advice to um, like would-be allies or just anybody basically who's following them on like their life and like what they want and need from the people around them and from like the wellness industry. Um, so. Yeah, I I think without kind of like um like complicating it too much, mm. I think it's as simple as like understanding that when you are like trying your best, like you're doing a really really good and noble thing because it is easier um, if you're a person that's in a privileged position over someone else in some way, it's a lot easier to just ignore and be like, oh, yeah. I'm too scared because I don't want to get called out because that would make me feel like, uh, you know, guilty and like ashamed of myself in some way. Um, and obviously, you know, we see all these conversations in the media and such where people are being kind of like publicly like, um, 
cold out down, and isn't it? taken yeah. down. Yeah. And so everybody is like so, so, so scared. But um, I think it's just kind of like being like willing to learn is never going to backfire because you're you're yes. you're doing what anybody what all all that anybody is asking which is listening and learning so mm. um I think to be on like the right side of history and that kind of thing it's just as simple as being like I want to listen I want to learn um I'm curious about other people which if you're like a journalist you know a podcast or something like that you're naturally curious anyway so it's just kind of like um not closing yourself off to anything because you're afraid but just kind of like seeing what's out there and how other people live and think and knowing that that's not like um, that's not kind of like an intense or weird or scary thing. That's yes. just kind of like, you know, like like learning about people just like you would any other person. Mm-hmm. Um, there's nothing like confronting um, about it if you just kind of think, wow, like, I had no idea, you know, like if, if things feel like confronting or emotional, like there's a reason for that and that's a learning experience, um, but they don't need to be like scary. Okay, let's get into some astrology. Nadine Jane astrology felt like one of my first kind of big gets for the podcast. It's always tricky to land international speakers, especially the ones who are in demand. And even though Offline sits in what I've been told is the top 5% of its category in Australia, go us, I still get no's from time to time. But overall, I have found that US-based managers and agents and talent are way more open-minded when it comes to, I guess, assessing the unique shape of the opportunity for offline and what they might get out of it. Here in Australia, it really is more about size, but that was the same as when I was working in digital media, so I'm not that surprised. Anyway, just a little something to know. So Nadine wasn't doing much press at the time, and I actually don't think she does much now. So I'm just so grateful that she said yes. She's based in New York, so it was about 7pm her time, and I'm pretty sure she had a dinner date by 9. You know, they eat so late. <laughs> they. Um, so it was first thing in the morning for me. And given Offline's evolved mission to explore true self and conscious success, I thought it would be interesting for us to listen back to the part where Nadine talks about how our natal chart can inform not only where we give in terms of our work, but also what we get in return. We used my chart as an example, and it was super interesting for me and also very validating, which I think is what a good natal chart reading should do. It should affirm and validate what we already know and feel about ourselves. I also asked her to clarify what it means when Mercury is in retrograde because There's a lot of fear around it, but as she explains, all it's asking of us is to have an increased awareness. So we'll use you as an example because your chart's actually pretty interesting for career. Um, But for anyone who's maybe listening to this and looking at their chart, 
we look to the mid heaven to understand career. And if you're like, what the hell is a mid heaven? By the way, am I allowed to swear? Do you guys, is that, is that are you going to have to bleep I me out? Okay. Oh, okay. Awesome. Um, so if anyone's thinking, I have no idea what a mid heaven is, it's the highest point in the sky at the moment that you were born. So the cool thing about that is, is it defines your reputation, your career, it's your public image. So for celebrities, I think it's always interesting to look at their mid heaven. Cause you're like, Oh, that's why we think of her that way. Um, and so anyways, you have in the other place you can look is the sixth house, which in your case, we've already talked a ton about, but the sixth house of the chart will sort of explain what you give to your career and where your strengths lie in regards to work service. So like, what do we give? And then the 10th house explains what do we get in return? So it's like fame, honor, all those types of things. And in your case, what I think is really interesting about what you just described is that yeah, you got all this cancer stuff going into work service, which that basically means people benefit from your cancerian nature on your podcast and any of the endeavors that you do in a work environment, you're giving your cancer energy. But what you get, what other people are actually perceiving, which I think is really interesting, is Scorpio. Your midheaven is in Scorpio. And that actually is a part of you that's extremely intuitive. It means essentially the highest point in the sky for you is the inner psychologist. So you might be really good at reading people. Maybe that's why you like doing your podcast is you can draw people out very easily, just like a therapist would. Um, I always, I like truly Scorpio is the sign of psychology and I think they should get more credit mm-hmm. for that. Um, you also have Pluto, which is the ruler of Scorpio in your 10th house of career, fame and honor. And then you have Saturn, which means you have, a, you take your career seriously. You have lots of planets in your 10th house of career fame and honor, but they're all specifically in Scorpio. And so my guess is the reason why you're able to do what you just described is more because people think that you know, and people, that's the vibe of Scorpios. People are like, I don't know why, but I think she can read my mind. Cancer is more nurturing where people feel safe with you. The Scorpio is actually the part where people might trust you to tell them what they what they're feeling or to read them pretty well. So I would say for you, you use your intuition in both your work service and what you get in return from your work. Mm. Cause you have two water this signs is just going like, on. This yeah. Is the best. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like talk about validation. Yeah. You know, exactly what I'm like, reading is, mm. is, is you have that power anyways, that is completely baked in the person that you are, but how cool is it to have someone explain that to you that, you know, that the sky is yeah. essentially affirming that back for you. And now for when Mercury goes retrograde, it gets a pretty bad rap. And I think every women's outlet in the world has a good traffic month when it happens. I see so many fear-based stories about how we're all screwed and everything's going to go wrong. Nadine sets the record straight and teaches us how to work with it versus against it. We never know. But the reason why Mercury retrograde is so cliched is because Mercury is the fastest moving planet second to the sun. And so what that means is like when Mercury is in quote, not working right, it's really affecting our day to day life. Um, and so I'll pr- maybe just use that as an example, just because, and I'll, and I'll briefly talk through the other most common retrograde, uh, but Mercury retrograde, I think the most common misconception, by the way, is the planet's not spinning backwards. It's actually that the planet's moving slower. And so relatively speaking, it looks like it's spinning backwards just in comparison to what it's normally doing in comparison to the sun. Um, and so the way that the easiest way to think about it is the planet's drunk. 
it's like asleep at the wheel. You know what I mean? The planet that's normally helping us communicate with each other is wasted. And like, it's, it's useless at this point, right? <laughs> We're not going to call Mercury to pick us up, right? Because it's drunk, <laughs> it can't help us anymore. Um, and so I think it gets a bad rep because we're so used to not having thing. Mercury helps things go smoothly, basically. Um, and so, of course, we all hate it when things don't. And so the number one advice when Mercury's in retrograde is you got to dot your I's and cross your T's. And instead of using like your Grammarly online checker, why don't you just literally read through your document and make sure you said everything correctly? Um, make sure that you're sending your emails to the right person. Make sure that you're um, sending the text message to the right person. Like there's so many, by the way, transportation gets messed up as well because Mercury sort of mm -hmm. the operator. And so why don't you just leave 10, 15 minutes earlier than you normally would to pre-anticipate the fact that something might go wrong. So I always think of it as um, an experience of adulting because nor is the parents, which would be Mercury is drunk and it's asleep. And so you got to parent yourself during those periods of time. Okay, next up is the serene and always insightful Menage Diaz. He is the Buddhist meditation teacher I had an honest conversation with in July 2019. And I still receive feedback on this episode today. I think Menage's potency as a teacher is the way he draws on his lived experience when responding to inquiry. He's worked in corporate and at a time, he also suffered from anxiety and insomnia and disordered eating. Every part of our conversation is worth sharing, honestly, and airing again. But for the purpose of this little trip down memory lane, I've chosen the part that moved me the most, which was his liberating lesson on self and enlightenment. You know, it's a nuanced response because, you know, in Buddhist practice, there is a, a view that there isn't a self. Uh -huh. um, and the, the Pali word for that is uh, anatta, which means uh, non-self, you know, and, and that can be sometimes misinterpreted to mean that um, there is no fixed version of me. And that's true. Yeah, that's true in the sense that we sometimes think that um, there is a soul that resides deep within. Um, you know, in the Vedic texts, you talk about Atman, and, and that's, that's there. In Buddhist practice, um, it's nuanced because even though we don't think there is a soul, we think there is a consciousness. Mm -hmm. So you could use them interchangeably almost, right? But the idea of self in, in Buddhist practice is something that's always changing. It's not fixed. It's not who we are. And it's constantly shape-shifting due to uh, causes and conditions. Uh, an example of that is, you know, the person that I took to be me 12 years ago is a very, very different person uh, due to the causes and conditions that came around to, you know, make me the successful uh, the businessman, the successful uh, father, the successful sportsman, blah, 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 blah. But the version of me that is now is also here due to causes and conditions. So, I had health scares that led me to meditation that allowed me to see my life in a very different way. So the version of me is very, very different to the version I was back then. And, you know, I could even argue the version that is me here sitting talking to you now is very different to the one that was there three days ago. Three days ago, I was sick. I had the flu. I was in bed. I didn't want to speak to anyone. I was oh, grumpy. Oh, no. I'm so glad you're and, better. Um, 
Yeah, but like this this version of, of need that we think is is so fixed is actually not. And given the right causes, given the right conditions, we can be anyone. We can change at at any moment. And um, for me, that's actually quite liberating because I find this. Uh, for a long time, I thought you know when I was struggling with anxiety, for example. I'm like I am just this anxious person. Like I, I can't see out of, like out of this little prison that I've constructed for myself. And even when I was you know visualizing what life would be like in five years, like I just thought this was something that was always going to be there. It was going to be debilitating in my life. But um, but that wasn't true, you know. And things change and things evolve and. And this idea of self is constantly changing. Mm -hmm. uh, what causes us suffering in, in the Buddhist philosophy is the identification with the self, mm -hmm. as in this is who I am. I am this meditation teacher. I have this role that I have to play in the world. Um, I am awakened. I am enlightened. And the moment that begins to shift, like tomorrow I could have a, a massive panic attack. Um, and then I'm like, oh, shit, I am that teacher that I built up in my head who's had a panic attack. And then... There's so much suffering attached to that. So, mm. uh, you know, in, in our tradition, there isn't an idea of self. And, and I think that's, you know, really liberating for us. Mm, it, it really is. I wonder, like you said the word enlightenment, and I've been pondering that word um, as I've explored Vedic more deeply. Um, what is your um, view on, on that word? And it seems to me that in some sort of spiritual circles, it seems to be this destination. And what's coming up for mm. me is that perhaps we all just have an opportunity to be enlightened at any moment versus it be an arrival. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's such a loaded word, right? Enlightened. Mm. Like for anyone that doesn't meditate, they're like, what the yeah. are you guys talking about? <laughs> but, you know, in, enlightened... Um, I tend to use it interchangeably with awake, you know, awakened. Um, the reason I say that is like, I agree with you. There are little moments that we have the opportunity to, to find awakening, you know, that moment where we're in a relationship and we have this moment of clear seeing, we're like, this actually isn't going anywhere. You know, um, the moment where we're in a heated argument and we feel the anger rising in our body and we don't react. That's like a moment of awakening right there. Um, but in our tradition, like the, the full broader context of the meaning is the moment we are free from greed, hatred, and delusion. Um, so the moment we kind of let go of these afflictive emotions, then we experience what we call um, awakening or enlightenment. And depending on which branch of um, Buddhism you follow, you either become uh, an arahant, which is um, someone that is uh, attained a certain level through meditation practice um, or in the Mahayana tradition uh, of Buddhism, which is more the Tibetan style of practice, we become bodhisattvas. So um, almost like a, a mini, a mini Buddha, you know, that, that hasn't enlightened until everyone is enlightened uh, mm -hmm. and then they reach their Buddhahood. Buddhahood. Mm -hmm. Love. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's really what it means, you know, the mm. Buddha, Buddha simply translates to someone that is awake. Beautiful menage. All right, let's switch gears from Buddhism to human design. I actually invited my next guest into Offline's professional development space, which is called Off. Really recently, she taught a full lesson on the part of our human design chart that sheds light on our purpose, which is the incarnation cross. 
So sticking with how our consciousness informs our careers, I thought I'd use that section of our episode here as well. Jacqueline Michelle is an absolute superstar. She's based in Arizona, I'm pretty sure. So the both times that we've collaborated, it's been like 1am her time. <laughs> but when we had this honest conversation in 2019, what I do remember is human design still felt very much on the fringe. And I think to some extent it still is. It's probably for me, one of the more I guess, unbelievable knowledge sciences out there when it comes to how it was conceived, but it still remains one of the most impactful for me personally and professionally. A co-creator inside of actually recently asked me how learning about my human design has helped me grow and evolve versus say Western or Vedic astrology. And for me, understanding my design has shifted my behavior and my output in my life. Human design really is about having a strategy. And for context, I'm a generator with sacral authority and my profile is a 6-4. Okay, let's hear from Jacqueline about the role of our incarnation cross, our profile, and the difference between living in alignment with our design and pushing up against it. That's one of the biggest, I think, things so many women these days, especially in communities I'm in on Facebook and and what I've heard from my clients is, it's so strange. I remember I listened to your episode with Nadine Jane and um, what she said, the number one thing people come to her and ask about are relationships. Well, the number one thing my clients come to me and ask me about is career. They want to know their sense of purpose, what they're here to do, how they're here to do it. And that's where that information lives in your chart. It definitely lives in your incarnation cross. And sometimes it's really, it's like very clear. It's almost like you're here to be a journalist or you're here to be, and just and not necessarily, it doesn't say you're here to be a journalist, but it'll say like you're here to communicate with others and, and speak truth to power or advocate on behalf of people who are voiceless. Like it's clear sometimes what they're pushing you toward career wise, but sometimes it's more, you know, ambiguous. Like my incarnation cross is all about understanding what love is supposed to look like on this planet and, and holding kind of the, the, the two things in my hand of one, this utopic ideal of like what love should feel like and look like, but then this cruel understanding of what it actually looks like on the physical plane and trying to kind of marry those two together and start pushing, you know, worldly relationships to look more like that, you know, generosity and compassion and, and, you know, and I'm supposed to learn how to do that through my own relationship with myself. So, you know, small order, totally easy. I've got it mastered, <laughs> not at all. Um, and yours is all about, um, let me pull it up. Actually, you're, you have the right angle cross in the Maya in your chart. Um, and so that's all about basically describing everything that is happening around you and, and helping people understand and navigate change. Mm. And so you're someone who's very in a tune with how things are evolving and changing and moving. And you're kind of serving as the conduit between the people and the change. And you're explaining it. You're, under, you're kind of articulating it in a way and making it more practical for people who are overwhelmed by it. And so it's all about this quest for truth and this like, this vigilance around like how things are moving and shifting and changing. And and you want to kind of like the things that turn you on are religion and science and, and all these big topics that you understand, like, you know, the evolution of things as we walk Mm. through the world and you're supposed to kind of be the person who, who shares that with other people, which again, like I've had a few podcasters (laughs) who, who are right up across the Maya. Um, 
Yeah. So basically that's the place like, you know, and there's, there's, it's again, it's also one of the harder things to Google information on, but it does give you such a clear idea of like the bigger overarching kind of karmic dharmic lesson you're working out while you're here. And then your profile is basically how you're here to walk through the world in the way that's best going to help you get to that karmic dharmic lesson. And so it's a combination of the line that your conscious son is sitting on over the line. It's like a fraction over the line that your unconscious son is sitting on. So um, in your chart, your gate 62, which is your conscious son's on line four, and your uh, unconscious son's on gate is in gate 42, which is on line six, which makes your profile a four, six. Mm-hmm. I have a couple more questions for you. Yeah. Um, when someone is living, do we, would we say they're living by their unique design? Would that be the right way to talk about that? So if I'm like on point with my human design. Yeah, you're kind of living in, you're kind of trying to be in alignment with your design. Yeah. Like you're not pushing against it. You're trying to embrace it. Yes. Well, I wondered if you can describe to us, I mean, perhaps for yourself because you're so deep in your own and, you know, for clients that you've coached through theirs, what does someone who's living by their design look and sound like? Like what could we expect to see from someone and maybe what does it feel like? So for myself, like understanding and unpacking my sacral center was like the biggest aha moment I had. The career that I was in prior to, you know, building my, my blog and, and taking on clients um, was draining me physically. Um, not just because it was 80 or 90 hours a week that I was giving to work, but just the fact that it had no longer given me joy to do. I used to love teaching. I used to even love the product that I was selling. And after a while, I kind of it just the joy that used to be there wasn't there anymore. And I started having a lot of health problems. I started having adrenal fatigue, really big issues with sleeping, a lot of weight gain, just my skin was a mess. And it was just like, my body was basically trying to tell me with like every fiber of its being stop, like this isn't healthy. This doesn't feel good. Stop doing it. And so every day toward the end, I felt like every time my alarm went off, I wanted to cry. And it was just like my body kind of contracting even in the fetal position, being like, don't get out of bed, don't go and do it. And even decisions I was trying to make were just nothing was in the flow. I just felt like I was constantly running into these obstacles. And it got to the point where it was almost like the universe had to speak that loudly for me to say, okay, so everything needs to stop. And I need to hit the pause button for a while and figure out exactly what is going to feel like I'm in my alignment. And now my work schedule is completely different. I only say yes to things that um, well, not only I still have to pay taxes and, you know, <laughs> clean my apartment and things like that, which, but, um, but I try to, in terms of career and clients I take on or podcasts, I, 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 you know, collaborate with or whatever it is, or even within the part-time job that I have, I only say yes to things that give me that joy that feel like a sacral. Yes. And that has kind of, now I feel like when you go to work, it recharges me as opposed mm-hmm. to drains me. And when I get on with a client, I'm happy and buzzy and excited afterwards as opposed to being like, I need to take a nap. I can't see anybody. I have to like pull away from everyone else. And so, yeah, so living in your design, especially if you're a generator or a manifesting generator, you should feel like you're re-energized by the things that you do. Mm. And in human design, we're given something called a not self theme. And that's basically your red flag for you're out of alignment. Things are not okay. For projectors, it's bitterness because they're here to be guides. And if they feel like they're screaming into the wind and trying to guide people who are like, I'm not here to hear that. I'm not here to listen to your opinion. They're going to feel bitter. They're going to feel very unseen and unheard. And that kind of cues them into, "Mm, they don't have that recognition. It's not the right audience. 
they need to find their people. Mm. Um, and, you know, manifestors, again, if they start feeling angry, it's probably because they didn't inform the right people they needed to about the idea they wanted to manifest. And now the roadblocks have been thrown up in front of them. So that not self theme again, mm. and it's listed, um, when you run your body graph, there's a little panel that pops out on the right side of the screen that lists all the different properties. Your not self theme will be listed in there. And that's your big, like, that's your red flag that like something is out of alignment. Because isn't mine also to do with time? Like I need, the timing needs to be correct for me to land my ideas. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah. We are not self theme is frustration. When we don't feel like we've been productive, when we feel like we've been giving energy to something that just isn't moving forward, mm. when we start feeling like Sisyphus, like pushing the boulder up the hill, like for all eternity, and we're just not getting to the top, like that ends up that for us, like we can't deal with that. Like that feels awful. And we're meant to fall asleep every night, exhausted and feeling satisfied though. Like, oh, that was great. It was such a productive day. I am bone tired, but oh my gosh, did I get a lot of stuff done. And when we start feeling exhausted and just like frustrated and, and just like, like that's that's our body telling us something is not in in alignment and trusting that sense of timing also you're going to feel a pull when it's the right time you're going to feel that sacral yes and I think one of the biggest lessons for everybody at least that human designs taught me is that not everything is for us and really paying attention to when we we're feeling that block or feeling that like obstacle being thrown up and trying to figure out well is it my body or is it my am I truly listening to the messages that my body's trying to send me um, it can be that can also be really freeing. Okay, time for a new theme entirely: women's health. My honest conversation with naturopath and women's health activist Lara Bryden was one of the more polarizing episodes I've published. I learned a lot in the moment. And like so many of us, I left the conversation feeling pretty angry about the lack of education around the pill and just how long I'd taken it, not knowing the impact it was having on my body and my cycle. I actually didn't know that I wasn't ovulating when I was taking the pill and I felt a bit robbed by that. Like women are cyclical and we are designed to cycle. Truthfully, I wasn't actually going to include this episode in this beautiful little throwback, but then I thought more deeply about it and what came up for me was if I share this particular part again, maybe it will help just one more woman feel more informed. This is the comparison I like to make. With the hormonal IUD, you can cycle, i.e. ovulate, have a menstrual cycle, but not bleed mm-hmm. if, if, the, if it stops bleeding, which it can do. So with the hormonal IUD, you can cycle but not bleed. With the pill, you, you bleed, bleed but don't cycle. cycle. Which is a... It's a fake reality. That bleed but don't cycle is... That's the part that you can see on the look on my face. That's the part that really gets me. Like that is... Well, one of the things I loved in your book was... Maybe this is a good question for you, but the language is important to you in that you don't allow patients to come in and call that a period. Right. So you call it, as you were saying before, a withdrawal bleed or a pill bleed. 
because basically it's fake. Yeah. It's set up to almost trick your mind into being like, this is my period because I'm seeing blood. Exactly. Oh, it's wild. But I do it gently. I'm like, yeah, we're, yes, we're not yeah. going to use that word. Yeah. Because the other thing when patients will say is, oh, yeah, my period stopped when I stopped the pill. That's a common thing. I would have someone sit down in my yes, office. Yes, I want to talk about this at length. Yes. Yeah. So they're like, okay, my problem. I was like, what's okay? Why are you here today? Okay, my problem is when I stopped the pill, my period stopped. So the first thing to say is, okay, well, those weren't periods. So the last time you had a period was before you took the pill. Wow. So when was that? They're like, Shit, um, 15 years ago. When I was 17. I'm like, okay, so that's the last time you had a period. So now let's think about what were your periods like back then? Okay, and here's the other thing to say at this point. The problem with shutting down the cycles of teenagers is that that's when their cycle is maturing or trying to mature. This is a big deal. Mm. And this is something that has just not been discussed very much. But this, I, I get this information from Professor Geraldyn Pryor, who's the endocrinologist who helped me with period repair manual. She had some research that she quotes and also just her knowledge as an endocrinologist. She states that it takes 12 years to mature the menstrual cycle. In other words, if you start having periods at 13, it's not until you're 25 that you have what she calls a robust cycle, which means you're making optimal amounts of progesterone. You're making that temporary gland, that corpus luteum. You're really doing it well. I mean, you may have had, you were ovulating during those intervening years, but you were just getting good at it, right? So, which is why to start with, it's not, it's totally normal that a teenager is going to have irregular periods, that a teenager is going to potentially have heavier periods because... She's those first few cycles. Just girls establishing itself. The, those first few cycles, girls haven't ovulated yet, so they're not making progesterone, which is the hormone that lightens the period. I just had a patient. A couple, this oh, week, I didn't actually, know that. Okay, who, so who, your first period, you're not ovulating. Well, it's unlikely. Okay, those first few periods, you're probably they're like practice periods. Yeah, right? cute. <laughs> you just kind of your body's like, yeah, oh my okay, god, I'm bleeding. What's going on? It's, well, it's like it's it's from the estrogen. So you start your ovaries wake up. They're like, oh, okay, we're gonna try this out. They make estrogen, and that you know, thickens the uterine lining. And so eventually that's just going to, it's like a withdrawal bleed, like a breakthrough bleed. Mm -hmm. But eventually if all is going well and you're healthy and you start making progesterone, you start ovulating and making progesterone, and then that makes your periods more regular, lighter, hopefully less painful. Just That's how you mature your menstrual cycle. Now, the problem is if you shut that down. Not even given a chance. No, because remember, contraceptive drugs completely pretty much switch off the ovaries the communication between the brain and the ovaries, when, if you do that for 15 years and then stop the pill, most women cannot reasonably expect to just start ovulating just like that. Now, which is why, no, you're not going to just bounce back and start ovulating. Some women do. Here's what I find with my patients. And the, the question I always ask is, what were your periods like before you took the pill? And I'm just praying. I'm hoping that they had at least maybe even one year of periods or maybe two. So if a patient said to me, yeah, I, was, I didn't start the pill till I was like 17. I'd been having periods for four years or something, and they were semi-regular. I'm thinking, okay, good. I think it's going to be okay. You know, as a baseline, think, we know what we might expect on return. Well, and also the ovaries knew kind of got started, right? Mm. They knew what to do. You, and well, we know that your ovaries could do that. They had done it before. 
which is now this really speaks to the lack of research. So sometimes when anyone brings up the issue of post-pill syndrome or post-pill amenorrhea, which is post-pill not getting your period, basically, then we'll get this like batted back to us. Oh, no, there was a study about that and it's fine. It's like, yeah, really? Because that was a study of adult women who maybe even after they had, had already had a baby or something and took the pill for a couple of years and then stopped it. Yes, mm-hmm. many of those women could get their period back. You give the, the pill to an 11-year-old girl and she takes it till she's 29 and stops those drugs. I mean, no one has studied that. No. And so is, am I right in understanding it's almost like that 29-year-old girl almost re-enters yep. at the period of an 11-year-old. Yep. She has to oh pretty much God. start up, start where she left off. To a degree. Mm. I mean, obviously her brain's matured in other yes, ways. Yes, and yeah. Yes. I mean, and truth is no one's really studied that. Mm. We don't know what happens to these. Because at the moment, the paradigm we live under is just take the pill until you're ready for a baby and then we'll give you mm. IVF. If any of what Lara said strikes a chord for you or you want to learn more, I highly recommend reading her book, The Period Repair Manual. Okay, next up is sweet Dylan Smith, who I actually think I just walked past when I was getting my chai. Dylan is an Ayurvedic practitioner, holistic health educator, and the founder of Vital Veda. We met through mutual Vedic friends, and he's really just such a sweet person to be around. I've had a couple of pulse analysis sessions with Dylan, and he also prescribed me my Ayurvedic herbs when I was trying to conceive little Betty and also following her birth. I thought it was worth noting that one of the biggest lessons I've learned that I now teach, especially inside off, is how important our state of consciousness and physical, mental, and emotional health is to us experiencing what I call true self-success or conscious success. We can't make contact with our gifts and our intuition or the most evolutionary thing to do in any given moment if we are in a heightened state of stress or existing within a stressed body or spirit. So tending to our state is the through way to living a life that feels easeful and useful and relevant. And that's what this holistic health science gives us and what Dylan specializes in is how to align us with nature and our true nature, bringing us back to our most optimal health. So when we sat down to have this honest conversation, I was actually recording in a really fancy studio in Sydney's CBD. And I remember Dylan rocking up on his skateboard, just like such a cool guy. Um, And as you'll hear, he's also such an expander. I hope you like the part I've selected for us. I feel like it's a bit edgy, but something we all need to be thinking about. EMFs activate these things in our body called voltage-gated calcium channels. So this is basically a channel in the extracellular fluid of the cell, like on the outside of the cell that activates that. And that basically, in short, without going into the whole steps of pathology, it activates excess free radicals, which cause inflammation and a whole lot of diseases. And they're concentrated mainly in the brain, the heart, and the genitals. At least that's what's been studied. Mm. So they open these 
voltage gated calcium channels allow excess cha- calcium to flow, which creates excess nitric oxide and, and then excess free radicals. And we know free radicals co- cause so many issues. So that's why, you know, we're really advising to not keep the phones on the po- in the pockets near your genitals and on your breasts when you're running and um, next to your head, like when you're talking on the phone, because they activate these, these calcium channels and that can cause so many issues. Like, again, with the early dementia, the early Alzheimer's, the autism, the brain fog, um, headaches, migraines, and infertility and, and low libido, you know, uh, you know, erectile dysfunction, so many things. So, mm. And this is the thing is, we're all sleeping with our phones next to our heads. Well, you're not, but... Yeah, way too many people are. It's shocking. Because that's our alarm and that can't be yeah. our excuse. Mm. Yeah, I mean... Like, get a fucking alarm clock. Or put your phone on airplane mode. It's, airplane okay. mode is pretty much zero EMF. So start becoming more familiar with airplane mode. Mm. You know, whenever, you know, if you need to walk with your phone in your pocket, fine. You know, I did. I came from the train station to here, but it was on airplane mode when I was coming here. I would never have that next to my genitals. I don't want my genitals to fry. Or do I want my femur bone? My, you know, I met a patient who, who had uh, lower bone density in his left thigh because of the phone was always in the pocket. And they've done studies exactly on that. Oh, wow. So, And just sitting with your laptop on your lap oh, working. Oh, that's a shocking one. But like what about with a pillow on top or it's Talk still just... Talk about infertility. No, it's... You need a, a EMF mat. You can buy them. Um, EMF protective shields where it's like a magazine. Oh. A strong magazine and that, that protects. But, you know, male sperm count has significantly reduced and also for the women aging the ovulatory clock, getting menopause earlier, getting the period issues. People think... EMF is not a big deal because they can't see it or feel it unless you're hypersensitive. But it's the new cigarettes, you know, it's, it has an accumulative effect. Mm. And if you're having issues, you take these causative factors away and you'll see a difference. I mean, you don't have to get stressed anymore. You don't have to get into a fight or have your boss scream at you to get stressed. You just have an EMF device near you. It activates the adrenal complex. That stress response will occur. It's like constantly vibrating and activating these cells. So mm. I can feel it though, like if I'm working with a pillow and my laptop on top, my legs feel yeah, for like sure. there's a current running through them. Like that's real. And then I'm like, this is not good. Oh the laptop, God. definitely you, you should be able to feel. I mean, especially if, even if you can't feel, if you just say to someone, stop and actually feel it. Can you feel the laptop? They'll feel it. Yeah. Especially a laptop, even a phone as well. Um, mm. And the more you learn about it, become more aware. And then there's hypersensitive people who develop hypersensitivity, which is another related to the, the, one of the biological implications of EMF is it makes the blood-brain barrier permeable. So we've got this barrier which protects our brain from toxins, basically, and chemicals and, and you know, un- irrelevant uh, cells and constituents. That becomes permeable and allows things to leak in. So, so many things gets like a free entry into the brain, whether it's a chemical smelling of perfume or... Um, all the glyphosate, the pesticides we're inevitably exposed to. Mm. Um, these, And again, the voltage-gated calcium channels can much easily get activated when that is permeable. Definitely. There's so many things that make the blood-brain barrier permeable. permeable. Mm. One thing is mold, toxins. Um, so, yeah, that's a, that's a big one. And that's why there's some hypersensitive people who I've met patients who can't even sleep in their boyfriend's bed because his bed sheets are washed with chemicals. And they walk past someone with perfume and they get a reaction. That's because their blood brain barrier is so weak that these toxins just get free entry. And the EMS weaken that blood brain barrier mm. a lot. I know hearing about the dangers of EMFs can feel alarming. 
And it goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway, there just isn't enough research yet. But for now, I think all we can do is be aware and we can do our best to minimize our direct exposure. So no more laptops on our laps, phones out of pockets and bras, trying not to sleep near Wi-Fi um, or the Wi-Fi router, and even better, just turning it off at night if that's a possibility for you. I used to have my phone on airplane mode all the time before I had Betty, but it's just a bit trickier now as I need to see the monitor more often than not. Anyway, so we are all doing our best. So now to hear from someone I just adore. I first met Penny Lacasso at a Pink Hope charity evening. We were both speaking on a panel and honestly, she was absolutely captivating Panel conversations can often be quite dry, lots of very safe answers and talking around things, I find. I try and use my voice and my experience to move people into self-reflection and intentional action when I accept a speaking opportunity and I quickly realized that Penny was the same. She once gave a speech about overcoming fear just wearing her cosy. <laughs> So after the panel, we were like magnets to each other. I told her all about offline and she told me about her business, Be Kindred, and what she hoped it would achieve. Penny has built the first educational program and measurement tool designed to humanize the future through the amplification of the intentional adaptability quotient. Quotient? Pretty sure that's how you say that word. So think of it as the new EQ and she's on a mission to teach 10 million humans how to intentionally adapt in order to future-proof happiness. Like, well, what? Here's the wonderful pen on facing our fear so we can step into our future. I actually think fear holds us back from realising potential that we don't even realise that we've got. Mm -hmm. And I say this all the time because I've lived and breathed it. You have absolutely no idea what you are capable of and I will guarantee you that you are capable of more than you ever imagined possible because if you had have told me four years ago, five years ago when I left corporate, that I could have achieved what I have now achieved in that period of time and some of the things that have opportunities that have come my way and, you know, and like you say, you know, accolades and, and um, things like that, I would have said you were freaking nuts. Mm. And it's only been through stepping into fear and like this term, and I, it's funny, I always like a term, but it's like if, if there's no point in giving people a term unless you can tell them how to use it. It's like, you know, get comfortable with discomfort. Well, that's great, mm. yeah, and <laughs> that's what I've learned. But what the fuck does that mean? Mm. Yeah, how, how does that apply to me in the everyday? Like how would I apply that? So, you know, this idea of leaning into fear. And so I encourage people in the context of how do you realise this potential that you don't know you have? What I've learned to practice is what I call micro-bravery and it's doing little things every day that scare you and it only has to be one and it's only got to be relative to you. Don't compare yourself to anyone else. Do something small every day that makes you feel uncomfortable mm. because what I know is that if you do something small every day that makes you feel uncomfortable and it could be as simple as talking to a random stranger, yeah, or signing up for a guitar class that you've always wanted to learn the guitar but you've never learned a musical instrument in your life, anything yeah 
When you do this stuff on a consistent basis, over time you will build the courage and confidence to step into bigger risk and bigger discomfort. And what ends up happening is you just build this level of resilience to rejection, like they call it rejection therapy, that means that basically you get out there and you just start asking for all the things you've ever wanted and you don't let a no stop you Mm. because I say to people all the time, you can't get yeses unless you get noes. And so many of us fear. We fear being rejected. We fear being told no. And so that means that we just don't ask for the things that really matter. Or we assume, especially women, I say this all the time, we assume people will be able to read our minds. Yeah. If we do a good job or if we, we, you know, do a good job or we just think these things, someone will just work it out and realise that that's what we want. It's bullshit. They won't because... People are too busy. So unless you start asking for what you want, unless you lean into this discomfort, unless you lean into the fear of rejection, you won't ever realise the potential that you have. Mm, And then perhaps also disconnecting um, our personal body, mind, feelings from our work. Mm. Like I've been doing a lot of that myself in going like, this is what I do. It's not who I am. And so if people don't like what I do, it doesn't mean they don't like me. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. But I mean, but I, well, that's the other thing, you know, we're, we're so worried about being liked. And I've gotten to the point where at 43 years old, I don't give a fuck anymore if people no, don't me like me. Either. I don't aspire to be liked by everybody. And and it's not that I'm an asshole or I'm, but the thing is, I've realized, and you know, that, that crazy moment where I delivered my keynote in my bathing suit two years ago, which was a <laughs> fundamental game changer. That moment, standing on a stage in front of 120 women in a bathing suit, that moment was the first time in 41 years where I realized I no longer needed the validation of other people. Yeah, as long as I was true to who I am and I was being a kind and what I think pur- purposeful person in the, in the world. It didn't matter what anyone else thought of me. What mattered was what I thought of myself. Mm. And as long as I held true to that, I was going to have a decent life, mm. you know. Life was going to be okay. And I cannot tell you how liberating it is to stop aspiring to be liked by everybody. Yes. My friend Rick suggested I start following my next guest, Carson Tula. And maybe that's interesting to know that a big part of my process is to follow potential guests for a while and observe what they share and what they believe and what they have to give. Carson felt like an almost immediate yes for me. His work as an empowerment and performance coach is centered on helping us rewrite the narratives we've created about ourselves to move out of story and into our value and our greatness and our potential. And this is something he did for himself following an accident that left him paralyzed from the chest down in 2013. I'm popping us in after I asked him to explain his methodology a little bit more and what he means when he talks about the narratives that we've created about ourselves. It has been bringing together a lot of different pieces of my education. So partly philosophy, right? What does it mean to be a human being? And then also I'm a psychology major. I have a degree in psychology. And um, so I've had access to or some education around the fact that 
human beings, we know, live in a reality that is very much manufactured and created by our neurology, by our brains, that doesn't actually represent reality. <laughs> you know, we, our brains are great at forming this experience around us so that we can do things like get fed and, and survive and have sex and have babies and all of these other things that keep us alive and functioning. But we know that our brains are actually not terribly reliable at forming accurate portrayals of like the universe and what's around us. Mm -hmm. So all that being said, humans use tools like language and perception and consciousness to create their realities. So it's in the assessment of things that happen in the physical world that we live our lives, not necessarily the actual physical world. So an example of this is what I had explained previously about my spinal cord injury. If I look at what happened to me, all that happened is I broke my neck. Like the bones just moved. They hit my spinal cord. The nerve stopped working. And that's all that happened. No drama. Mm. When I add in the story, when I add in the interpretations, the assessments, all of those things, that's where my reality lives. And so it was in that moment that I, like, again, kind of discussed earlier where I realized that my interpretation of the event, the events of my life were my reality and that I could look at many other places in my life where I was disempowered or suffering to look at what meaning was behind those events that, um, that I had added the meaning I had added to those events. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and when I looked and was able to start to navigate the stories and navigate the interpretations, I found freedom in being able to give some of those up and create something more empowering in their space. Like saying it's the day of my rebirth mm. rather than it's the day of my death. It's like what I was saying before about the, um, the Western obsession with labeling good, bad, right, wrong. Mm -hmm. And this is a bit of a Vedic sort of tenant, but like it's the duality that brings the agony. Mm -hmm. And we do that to ourselves. And so you just kind of think about it and you're like, and so maybe this is a question for you. Why do we do that? Why are we wired this way? Do you think yeah. like, how do you think about that? That's such a good question. Um, you know, Brene, Brene Brown says we're a meaning-making species, mm -hmm. right? And that's just that's just how we have evolved or been created, whatever you believe. Um, and I'm sure that there are like scientists and people much smarter than me who can tell you what all sorts of theories about why we are this way. Um, and I, I, you know. If we look from an evolutionary perspective, I know that survival is certainly a piece of this, mm -hmm. right? By creating meaning, we can do things like love. We can do things like connect. We can create. We can um, build futures. We can, I mean, it, it was the greatest tool for survival, right? Um, 
So if nothing else, it has helped us survive for a very long time. Mm, the analysis. Um, <laughs> <laughs> one of the things, like you're an advocate for many things, um, but one of the things you're particularly passionate about is rewriting the quote-unquote disabled people are inspiring narrative. <laughs> yes. Um, when non-disabled people participate in that dialogue, I wondered if you could explain to us what we're actually doing. Because, you know, we would think that we're doing the right thing by profiling and platforming and labelling inspiring. But what is it that we're actually doing by participating in that in that narrative? Mm-hmm. I think a few things happen. And like most things with disability, it's compl- it's complicated. It's kind of complex because sometimes I do think disabled people, in particular, if they live powerful lives, are super badass and incredibly inspiring to me, <laughs> right? But it's not because they are disabled. So what happens when an able-bodied person says, you're, you know, you're so inspiring, it puts, it does a couple of things. It puts disabled people up on a pedestal where they're required to be inspiring no matter what they do, even if they're not doing anything actually inspiring. Mm-hmm. And you can see this a lot. Just because I push myself down the road, someone will stop me and be like, you are so inspiring. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes I'm to be like, actually, I'm a dick. Today I'm being a dick, or I've been a jerk to my boyfriend, or I'm, you know, <laughs> a million other things, the least of which is inspiring. <laughs> But it's this idea, I think behind all of that is this this expression that your life must suck. Your life is really hard. I would not want to experience what you're experiencing. And by being alive, you are inspiring to me because I would not want the life you live from mm-hmm. where I'm standing, right? I think that that's behind some of that. A powerful lesson for me and I hope for you too. Now onto the practice that has been a driving force behind both my own and offline's evolution. It's japa. In Sanskrit, japa means the repetitive uttering of a mantra and we do this around amala. In my next guest's own words, this intentional practice is one of the most profound yogic technologies available to us. Japa has the power to completely rewrite the neural pathways in our brains. The repetition of such pure primordial sounds integrates these consciousness states into our own being. We chant specific mantras to cultivate and enhance different aspects of our life. The practice allows us to embody them as they become embedded within our psyche. We attune to the consciousness state of what we wish to experience. So that's Dahlia Gencha, a Vedic astrologist, holistic kinesiologist, and Kriya yoga teacher. She prescribed me my first japa practice during a Vedic astrology birth chart reading in the spring of 2019. I was sharing with her in that session that I was lacking the courage and the conviction to create my first online course. Like I knew it was the most evolutionary thing for me professionally and for the business. 
But of course, fear had me in this constant cycle of procrastinating, much the same as producing this episode. And as you'll soon hear, she prescribed me the Jupiter mantra, which is very expanding, but also very sweet natured. I had to do four rounds of my mala a day for 40 days. And in those 40 days, I basically wrote the course, (laughs) which is incredible. So for me, Japa was one of those practices that I had to experience firsthand in order to really believe in its power to completely transform my internal state, but also my external reality. So the snippet coming up is taken from the episode Dahlia and I recorded to share more about this ancient practice, but also to invite you to join us for Offline's first group Japa journey, which we hosted in 2020. And what was special about that particular episode and also that journey is I was pregnant with Betty, but I hadn't announced. And I think I was about 20 weeks pregnant when we recorded on my lounge. I remember rubbing my little bump um, at the time. And I think I was 30 or so weeks when the journey started. And on our first Zoom call, I stood up and I surprised everyone with my beautiful belly. So I have such kind of fond memories of this chapter and this episode and that journey. I also wore the, the mala that I used during that journey during Betty's birth, and it's now hanging in her room. Now, if you listen to this and you become interested in joining us for our next journey, we run them once or twice a year, you can register your email at getoffline.co forward slash study. On that page, you'll see a little box about Jupper and to register your interest. Okay, here we go. I'm popping us in at the part where we were discussing actually a second mantra that Dahlia had prescribed me that I'd stopped doing a few days earlier, and she helped me understand why. It's like these mantras are energy waves, yet the entire universe is on these frequencies. Everything is a frequency. So when we want something or when we want to align ourselves with something, it's like a radio station. We attune ourselves to that frequency, which is why the mantra works. But if there are vrittis or, um, you know, fluctuations in our consciousness or some scars, which is the deep scarring of on a soul level, well, then this mantra has to sort of like kind of unclog the pipes and push its way through, literally pushing its way through our neurophysiology. Mm. It's literally pulsating <laughs> through um, your, neuro- your neuropsychology, rewriting the way your brain even works. Mm. That mantra that you, that you had trouble with doing was the mantra that I was doing when I was robbed. Yeah. And I remember one day I was like lying on this bench in India and I could literally feel my brain rewiring. I could feel this twitching going on. And I was like, wow, there is big stuff moving. But yes, I had the support Mm -hmm. and I could, you know, turn to my teacher and say, fuck, this shit's coming up for me. Good. Keep
keep going. Mm -hmm. You know, these are pure sounds of nature. There is no harm that can come from them. But if we don't have the awareness that the old kind of harmful ego thoughts are moving out, we might associate with them and think that's what we're experiencing when rather that's what's actually leaving Leaving. us. And we don't want to recycle those thoughts. Yeah. But we need to have the awareness. We need to have the support to know that's leaving us. Look, this is real, massive, life-changing shit. Yeah. And that's why I wanted to share that story because, you know, part of um, my own, I think everybody's quote-unquote spiritual journey, when you're truly on it, you realize that it's not wholly fun all of the time. No. It's not beautiful and light and airy and joyous. It's bumpy and hard and chunky and dense a but lot of the time. it's always worth it. It's always worth it. But always. I wanted to share that to say you really have to want yeah. to change, change. an evolution mm. because you will get it from this. Yes. But I'm not telling you it's going to be easy. The Jupiter mantra, I was on cloud nine. Oh, it's fucking, <laughs> yeah, because Jupiter is the planet of abundance and ease and joy. It's fucking blissful. I, lo- I loved it. I totally fell in love doing Jupiter. Did you? Yes. Mm. I had like amazing stuff happen during <laughs> Jupiter. Yeah. But this mm. one, and I knew I was meeting myself at my biggest yeah. thing. Mm. And I just yeah. was like, and Which I is why I gave it. To you. To, yeah, exactly. Because yeah. it's what's left for me. Yes. There's more, but it's my. No, it's your. It's your. It's the one I got to transcend, you know. Yeah. I couldn't remember the mantra. Yeah. And I knew that was some sort of resistance as well, where I was just blocking my own ability to memorize something. I was sitting there, like, for an hour, like, rehearsing it. I love your dedication. Oh, seriously. You know me. I'm like yeah. perfectionist through and through. I couldn't get it. And then I only could listen to the song of it, but I wanted to be able to do it myself because I found that was what was most transformative about the Jupiter mantra was it was me hearing the sound come out of my own voice Mm. and mouth that had that resonance for me versus hearing somebody else do it. Totally, because you need to be cultivating that vibration within yourself. And, you know, I gave you a full-on practice because, first of all, you you show up for the change, you know, yeah, you're ready, ready for that yeah. huge shift. But also you have a very strong practice mm. and you were familiar with Japa and loved it. Yeah. You know, but we meet people where they're at mm. and there's, there's so many sort of stages of mantra. They will all be profoundly effective, um, but it will meet you kind of at your, you know, level. Yeah. Yeah. So it, you know, if someone's never sort of meditated before or taken on a japa practice before, well, then we'll give them something that meets that. Yeah. And that will have that effect. The first mantra I ever did, I did, I remember I did one Lakshmi, who's the goddess of abundance. I was doing that at nighttime, literally one a day for 30 days. And I was like, oh my God, this is so hard. And it had this outstanding permanent shift in my life. My like kind of lack consciousness. Oh my God, there's not enough shifted completely Mm. once a day, chanting this very simple mantra. Now, you know, once a day, 
Uh, mm. I'm like, oh, doesn't that, even touch the sides. You know, yeah. it's like it's almost like when you're meditating and then you take drugs and you don't really feel them be as amazing anymore. Mm. You know, so you need it kind of yeah. crank up the dose or you become not immune to it. But everything works for you where you are at. So again, don't forget to register your email if you want to journey with us. It's such a beautiful 40-day experience. All right, next up is I think one of the most important guests I've had on the show. Racial justice educator, attorney, grief coach, healer, and author, Rachel Ricketts. If you're familiar with her work, you'll know that she teaches that as a white woman, I can't be an ally, but I can act in allyship. She's also taught me to build a tolerance for fucking it up because I will. And for any white person in a position of power and privilege, our need to be right cannot supersede our commitment to racial justice. So that was my mindset going into this episode. I'm popping us in at the moment that I shared with her that she taught me what righteous anger looks like and that it can be really polarizing for the fragile. She said before that one of the things she's been challenged with is the need to prove her humanity to people. I asked her how she claims boundaries for herself. Unfortunately, it's a current feeling. I would love to say that um, there is some sort of like deep inner work that I've done to be able to move beyond that. And um, there isn't because that's that's unfortunately just a product of living in the status quo systems of oppression with which we all reside. But I can say the work I've been able to do around it is to be more embodied and more boundaried about it. Um, that has also come with, you know, additions in power and privilege that allow me to do so. Um, so I have to acknowledge that as well, but you know, when people, um, when people, I was in a conversation recently with a white woman and she basically not all white people me. And it's like, when those moments happened, you're not, to me, that's a, that's, um, not acknowledging my humanity mm-hmm. or my ex- existence or experience. So it is, um, and, and, and to me, that's what anti-blackness, I mean, that's what white supremacy is, but very specifically also that's what anti-blackness is when we're operating from an anti-black space. And again, oftentimes this is subconscious, um, but it doesn't make it any less violent or, or the impact any less harmful. Um, when things occur that are anti-black, that is um, a product of not seeing black people as humans, which we have all been conditioned to do in Mm. the systems of oppression that we live in. So especially as a queer, black, multiracial woman, um, I am invalidated frequently because I'm a black woman and I speak out against these systems. And so I'm constantly made to feel wrong and I'm constantly um, demonized. I'm constantly labeled angry. I am constantly seen as a black woman before Rachel. I talk about this Mm. in the book. Like one of the many privileges that white women possess is they walk into, I mean, well, I'll say this and and caveat it, but... um, for the white women who have, who have sufficient power and privilege, which is many, to walk into a room and be who they are. Like, you know, like be Sandra or Ellen or whoever the fuck that. they are yeah. before being like, oh, there's a white woman who walked in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, and my caveat is, of course, 
many white women exist at various intersections of identity. So if you're disabled or trans um, or poor, et cetera, et cetera, there's other stuff going on there as well. But as a black woman, we're just talking about race. As a black woman, my blackness and my gender identity precede me. Very rarely do I get to walk into a space and just be Rachel first. Like, oh, who's this person? All of the stereotypes that folks have about blackness and about womanhood and about black womanhood enter into the room before I do. Enter into your thought process about me before knowing me. And that is invalidating my humanness. And that mm-hmm. is the status quo. So you exist as the labels in a way. Yeah. I exist as the the stereotypes that folks have about me. And what's really challenging is that so many folks have these stereotypes and they aren't aware that they have them. So you're fighting with, and this is so true in um, the Canadian context and um, what I understand of the Australian context as well. Because again, mm-hmm. we compare ourselves to America and we're like, we're not like that. We don't do that outward awful things. We don't have white people storming the Capitol in the name of white supremacy. And I would say that doesn't make your... Um, actions or your c- community any less um, racist no. at all um, because it's the subconscious constant invalidation and labeling and othering and um, ostracizing that constantly happens that uh, you're not even aware of. That's the, that's the premise of my book. If you're not even aware of the harm that you're causing, how will you ever rectify it? If you have no capacity to withstand your own emotions and your own trauma and have an understanding of what's going on inside you, you're never going to be able to fulsomely embody the work that is required to overturn it individually and then certainly not collectively because if we have a whole collective of people who are out there trying to create change but they're not embodying the work and seeing the ways in which they're perpetuating that harm they're just going to continue to perpetuate harm even when you very intentionally and explicitly set out to do otherwise Mm. when the black lives matter movement really kicked off in may or june last year it was really interesting to see the, I guess I'll say the influencer set on Instagram in Australia mm. really rally against what was going on in the States. And it was very polarizing because if you live in this country, you understand how much work we've got to do and how <laughs> disgusting it is that we live on land that was never ceded. We are the only country in the world that doesn't have a treaty with its First Nations people. Mm. We still have a government that celebrates the day every day, every year, January 26th, that celebrates the day this country was invaded and calls it Australia yeah. Day. <laughs> right. So it was actually really, yeah, kind of confronting to see that when it's happening in the States, all of a sudden we find a voice. Mm-hmm. But when right. it comes to actually our own people, um, and that's, you know, changed a tiny bit, um, <laughs> but but not enough. Um I wondered what advice you have for other Black Indigenous people of colour when it comes to the internalisation of the gaslighting and bypassing. Mm-hmm. How do you, I guess, actively stop yourself from letting that emotional violence in or can you not? Yeah. Um, that was uh, another main premise for the book is not, right, it's, it's to support the healing and the work for everyone. And so for me, the the healing work that Black, Indigenous, and people of color have to do, specifically Black and Indigenous folks folks who face not only racism and white supremacy, but anti-Blackness and anti-Indigeneity from all races, including our own, um, is 
unearthing our internalized oppression, the ways in which we have internalized these systems of domination and oppression, cause, causing ourselves harm and also each other, right? So white supremacy exists in rooms without white people in the same way that patriarchy exists in room without men or masculine folks, mm-hmm. um, because we internalize it and we, we perpetuate it. So we see this in terms of like colorism, you know, like one of my privileges is I'm a light-skinned black woman. Um, and, um, and with fighting across, um, non-white racial groups, instead of focusing on the real problem, which is like, who, who created these systems, which I talk about in the book, who created these systems, who's benefiting, who has the most power and privilege here, really? Um, so that work is, is deep and deeply painful. This is deeply challenging work for everyone, irrespective of who you are, which is, I have a bit of compassion for that. Cause that's why I understand why people maybe don't want to do it because <laughs> mm-hmm. like facing yourself is the hardest shit you'll ever do in your entire life. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also the most rewarding. Um, but the work for black indigenous and people of color is, is that it's, it's, it's acknowledging the systems that currently exist that are causing us harm, which again is deeply painful because when we feel like it's us personally, right, which is how gaslighting works, like we're just constantly made to feel by our dominators and oppressors that it's our own personal problem. Mm-hmm. But when you feel that way, you feel like you at least have some control over changing it because you're like, oh, okay, I just need to do better. I need to pull myself up by the bootstraps or I need to X, Y, Z, earn more money, get a better education, live the capitalist dream, and then I'll be free from these shackles. And that's just not true. Like it doesn't matter who you are, you are subject to these systems. I mean, um, we know, for example, in the United States and in the UK, the statistics show that Black women's mater- maternal death rate is on average, I think, in the United States, three times higher than white women, mm-hmm. irrespective of education level or class. And Serena Williams wrote a whole article on this. Serena fucking Williams mm. almost died in childbirth. It doesn't mm. matter. You can't earn your way out of it. You can't achieve your way out of these systems of oppression. Of course, that allows you some additional power and privilege that can buffer you from it, but um, you're still a Black person, right? You're still not fully human because not enough people are doing their work to address this harm and to mitigate it and and, um, dismantle it. So our work is really uh, allowing ourselves the time and space to acknowledge the systems as they currently exist and have an understanding that these are systems that are causing us harm. That's not individual shortcomings. Um, and then doing our work to, to, to unearth what have we ingested, um, as like fact, um, for ourselves, that is really just systems of oppression, um, stories and perspectives thrust upon us by those who have the most power and privilege to ensure that they retain and maintain power and privilege to the detriment and exclusion of all Black, Indigenous, and people of color. And our healing work is really um, about our own liberation. So one of the the top things that I say for Black, Indigenous, and people of color to do um, as we move through this work, and this is like a moving target, it is for me, for sure, and I've been doing this work for years, is to learn how to prioritize our comfort above white comfort. And that Mm. goes against everything we've ever been taught. It's incredibly uncomfortable our parents most of us our parents will will be like don't do that you'll you'll be you'll be murdered you know like Mm. that it's like that visceral in their bodies like you just do whatever you're told you have to just be the best that you can possibly be because this world is up to get you um and that's what has to be done and um we have to reimagine all of these systems and have a fulsome understanding of, of how they're really rigged and stacked against 
um, anyone who doesn't have the most power and privilege. Um, and that requires deep, deep healing work. Um, and it requires us um, rooting into our ancestry and also um, really uptaking in our communal care, which is another thing I talk about in the book quite a bit, revillaging all of us. Um, and again, we're seeing this more with COVID, like the ways in which we need to care for for each other. Um, individualism is a lie. Um, we don't get by on our own. We literally can't survive on our own as humans. We need others. So um, yeah, all of mm. that is required. So if you sit in the seat of the privileged, I encourage you to buy Rachel's book and let's keep doing our work. I want to thank you for staying with me this long. I don't even know how long this is yet to honor Offline's 100th episode. It turns out producing this one hasn't actually made me feel ashamed at all. I'm starting to feel really proud of this body of work. So next up, we're going to switch to psychology to hear from Instagram's most followed psychologist, the holistic psychologist. And honestly, I still can't believe Dr. LaPera said yes. The context for this one is I was about five weeks postpartum when we had this conversation and I had worked so hard before Betty was born to get a half season ahead, which is like four months. It sounds like nothing, but it was an incredible amount of work to get there. So in the early months of her life, all the episodes that were rolling out had been scheduled. But then an ask that I had into Dr. Lerapera's team came back and it was a yes. And I couldn't say no. Any new mum will know the deep level of planning needed to be away from your newborn baby for even an hour. And at that time, Betty was still feeding like every couple of hours and obviously on demand. And so I literally breastfed her at my recording setup downstairs up until five minutes before we were recording. And then Tony came and took her out of my arms and I think she slept on his chest while I recorded, because I was like, I need you to do breathing checks. (laughs) Uh, I was still in that stage, but I feel like I still am to some extent. Um, But yeah, and then I jumped on the call at 7am to record. And thank goodness she was settled and calm because I just know there's no way I would have been able to have a, like having a conversation postpartum is hard enough, but like recording a conversation, if she was upset, it would have been near impossible. So I like to think that, yeah, Betty knew how important this one was to us. So here's Dr. Nicole LaPera on a behavior that many of us are exhibiting, especially today with the state of the world, but may not even know it, which is dissociation. I appreciate you specifically asking around this this topic, Allison. Um, because I think for some time, you know, whether or not we even heard of this concept of dissociation or if we had, uh, I don't think it's a concept that um, is as understood um, as it ought to be because what I've come to find is that it's quite universal. So historically in my clinical training, if I'm honest, when I heard that word dissociation as as I learned about it, 
Um, namely in the context of some, some of you might have heard of something called disassociative identity disorder. Um, it was once known as multiple personalities. Um, mm-hmm. And essentially, it's this idea of having different selves. So presenting in the world as a six-year-old child in one instance and a teenager in another and an adult in another instance. And that's a very simplification, of course, of the diagnoses. So when I learned about it in that context, had I ever heard the word dissociation, I never, Allison, in a million years would have applied it to me. Um, It seemed like something categorically different um, than anything that I could resonate with or that any process that I had seen myself. So for a very long time, that word itself was scary. I would cringe. It was not anything that I wanted to say or acknowledge, you know, was something that I was doing per se. And what I've come to realize is that disassociation is actually a function or a byproduct of the functioning of our nervous system. Um, it actually can, can develop from a, a state of an extreme state of nervous system dysregulation or of overwhelm that happens. So back in time, when I was a very young dependent infant, and I was born into a family that had a lot of big feelings. Um, There were health crises that were happening. There was a lot of stress in the home and a lot of big feelings. And in absence of having an emotionally attuned and supportive mother, because my mother was just as overwhelmed as I was dealing with the latest fire in the household. So as a child, the way I describe it is I had a lot of big feelings that were too overwhelming for me to navigate or to manage on my own. So I did, as we all do, as little children, because we're incredibly adaptive. So I developed a habit of what I call getting on my spaceship or of dissociating, of learning how to disconnect myself from my physical body and all of its sensations that were present in that body that at that time in childhood were too overwhelming for me to understand or navigate on their own. So the safest place for me as a child was to be as distanced from them as possible. So then cue any time, right, that overwhelm would set in, the next fire that would happen in my my household, even if it had nothing to do with me, the increase in stress that would likely feel overwhelming to my system with limited support would result in me utilizing that checking out. I would get on my spaceship again and again and again and again. And what I didn't know I was doing was I was doing the same thing I was learning about. I was dissociating. I was separating myself from my physical and my emotional body, ultimately separating myself from myself, though doing so out of protection. Mm. Oh, that's big for me. <laughs> it was like when I um, really started reading into it, I had the exact same sort of epiphany that, wow, this is how I'm actually living my life. And um, so another topic that was actually, this is probably one of the most popular topics that came up was reparenting, which is probably not surprising to you. Um, some of my listeners used the term um, and are familiar with it. Others didn't, but their questions were directly related to it. I wondered if you could explain what the process of reparenting is. So reparenting <clears throat> is often a process that many of us, you know, uh, embark on in, in adulthood, though essentially what it is, it's it's a process of relearning. Um, first and foremost, likely of reconnecting 
rebuilding that connection to our, again, physical, emotional, or energetic selves, our spiritual essences. So for me, that meant learning how to be consciously and safely present in my body, reconnecting with my body and all of its physical sensations. It meant essentially, right, landing my spaceship. Um, Mm -hmm. So inner child work um, for many of us can happen at any time. It's the acknowledgement that many of the habits and patterns that we're living um, in terms of caring for our physical, our emotional, and our spiritual selves, uh, many of those habits and patterns were began and repeated since childhood. So again, they are stored in our subconscious. So they typically are the habits and patterns that many of us, unless we be- become consciously aware of them, to again create conscious change, many of them become the ones we're repeating in adulthood. And as adults, not all of the time are those habits and patterns serving us, right? The way that we care for our physical body. If we were even modeled how to tune into our physical body and its ever-changing needs might not fit our needs as they've now shifted and changed as we've entered adulthood. Emotionally, Right? We might have to learn how to reconnect with our emotional selves, how to navigate our emotional worlds. Some of us become aware in adulthood that we are so disconnected from that essence that we were talking about earlier, um, that our goal and our reparenting process is rebuilding or recultivating that connection to our spiritual self or our essence. So reparenting um, can be a very individualized process. Um, It really means becoming aware of the habits and patterns we are living in areas of physical, emotional, and spiritual self-care, and of course, creating new habits and patterns that might better serve us. Dr. LaPera's advice is so incredible, but also so is her voice, don't you think? I honestly still can't believe she said yes, so just eternally grateful for that one. Okay, up next, we're coming to our last few teachers and we're going to hear from beautiful Laura Poole. So Laura is a Vedic meditation teacher currently based in, I think, close to Noosa now. She used to be based in Victoria. And I said it to her in this episode, but I really wanted to be ready to have an honest conversation with her. I first heard her share wisdom one night at Bondi Meditation Center as she's good mates with Matt. And honestly, she took my breath away. And that was early in 2019. And then, yeah, we recorded, I think, January 2022. And that was the point where I felt ready to host her. And I guess what I mean by that is I felt like my inquiry had matured to a point that I believed I could extract really relevant knowledge from her. And this is the thing is every teacher we encounter is kind of at the mercy of our state and our inquiry. And I take that really seriously when selecting guests and preparing for guests. So here's my favorite part of our, I think it was nearly two hours that we spoke for, And I aired actually most of it. Um, But yeah, I love this part. And can we get some hands raised for who is ready to degrow with us? We've been taught that you as an individual make things happen. Have your goals. You know, make sure you've 
put into your calendar all of the dates. You're going to hit those goals. You're going to strive. You're going to push. You're going to, you have to use all of your individual energy to make something happen. And, and this is a worldview that comes from a direct experience of being um, separated from our nature, mm. of not making contact with being, with the unboundedness of our, of our essential nature. When we're not in contact with, it, with that aspect of ourself, we don't really know who and what we are. And so, of course, the way that we're going to engage with life is as if we have limited energy, limited resources, limited time. If our identity changes, so do our thoughts, behaviours and actions. And so when we're meditating... We're really, and I don't, I don't say this to people, it's not on my website, but what we're, what we're doing when we're meditating um, is we're changing our identity. I can see why you don't put that on your website. <laughs> because if you don't understand, if you don't have the, um, <laughs> the whole context. picture, the context for what that means, it can be scary. Mm. I don't want to lose who I am. Mm. but you don't lose who you are. You gain what you are. Mm. And when you gain what you are, you gain your timelessness. You gain your infinite energy. You gain your infinite organizing power. Mm. You gain your bliss. Infinite relevancy. Infinite In relevancy. demands that we make ourselves relevant through growing things, scaling things, gaining a following. <laughs> How beautiful to think about I am infinitely relevant. Yeah. And the consciousness state is relevant. Your body will come and go and that's okay. All trees are coming and going. We're, we're nothing but uh what's that meme? Something like a, we're nothing but a, a complicated houseplant you know, with, with emotions or something like that. We just need some light, some love and some water. <laughs> um, but, you know, there are different models as well. Who's to say that that success means infinite growth? There's a new movement, um, the degrowth movement. And mm. I like this idea. Mm. And uh, over the past Sounds couple of years, yeah, over the past couple of years, I've kind of been forced into the degrowth movement, um, not being able to teach and expand and grow our business. It's been really nice mm. and it's been really slow. And we're still making enough to survive in the world and thrive in the world, um, but it's not at the expense of our mental, physical spiritual health. It's not at the expense of relationships. Um, and so I'm kind of, I'm kind of into the whole degrowth movement to be quite honest. So powerful and such an evolutionary way to think about our contribution. Now let's hear from the joyful and genuine Sa Simone. 
I received a lot of feedback after airing this episode and that did not surprise me in the slightest. I think the thing about Saar is we recognize and understand that he is original. In a world where spirituality is becoming commodified and commercialized, Saar is a really conscious model for us, for what it looks like to honor our most authentic expression. He developed his personal equation for liberation through desperation. He said that even in some of the most enlightened rooms in the world, he still experienced the same kinds of psychological and verbal oppression that he was experiencing in the non-spiritual rooms in his life. So that's why he created his spiritually sassy method. Sa ultimately helps us be ourselves. So I'm popping us in as he shared his equation for how to make contact with our gifts and realize our soul's purpose. I often ask people, write down five things you're curious about and, and some people freeze. They have no idea what they're curious about because they've been so sort of in this, in this, you know, following other people. If they're curious about that, then I'm curious about that too. But the curiosity I'm asking about is, is something that you're going to have to just kind of put on some music, drink some tea and, and just kind of like think about all the things that you're curious about. And you may actually start to be curious about your wounds, about your pain about your suffering, about your misery, about your despair. And that was what it was for me. I ended up being curious about addiction, about mental illness, about spiritual liberation, all things that I that we all innately are, 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 are born curious. We're all born curious about spiritual liberation. You know, we're all born curious about genuine happiness, but our, the way of getting to it, that's when, that's when you and I come in, you know, to sort of reorient people in a direction. Um, but to activate your gift, it's the, the, the first thing is the things you're curious about. And when you're, when you're researching the things you're curious about, do you experience the flow state? You know, when you're researching about mental health and mental illness, depression, anxiety, spiritual liberation, Buddhism, psychology, evolutionary, you know, um, whatever may be, whatever may be, whatever I'm telling you the things I'm curious about. As you're researching these things, is there a state of flow where you actually lose track of time? Where like mm-hmm. your where you become the action, where the observer and and the thing that's being observed kind of merge. We call that yoga, right? That's the true meaning of yoga, mm-hmm. um, union, uh, this samadhi consciousness, right? And so when you when you tap into those things, then you know that that is your your unique path to freedom, right? Because you already have that blueprint. Now 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 your your inner world is saying, honey. If you're tapping to the state of flow, which is, you know, um, scientifically proven to be like the best uh, uh, feel-good cocktail that we can cook up for ourselves without drugs or alcohol is when we enter the flow state. Mm -hmm. So if the things you're curious about when you're researching them, do they catalyst, are they the catalyst to a state of flow, right? Where you're not hungry, you're not tired, time stops, um, you really become one with your action. And then... The next stage is, are the things that you're curious about, they're bringing to the flow, um, do they leave you with a, a sense of contentment? Do they leave you with a psychological residue that is relaxed and content and, and kind of like 
an, an openness and, and sort of this big wide view where you're just kind of, a, you're at ease, right? Because oftentimes the things that we do leave a psychological residue that isn't spacious and relaxed and, and, and content. They kind of leave us with thirst, and emotional hunger and desperation and more needs and more wants and more, 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 more accumulation, more. So you, you, and then you go to the next stage is does the things you're curious about, do they activate the flow? Do they leave you with a psychological residue? And I know the word residue has like a negative connotation, but stick with me here. Residue in, in a, in a positive way. Um, does it, does it leave you feeling content and joyful? And then does it help other people? you know? And that's kind of like my equation that I speak about it in the book. You know, does it help other people? Are the things that you, that, that you awaken and activate joy, you know, that they help you activate your joy? Do they help other people? And when they do, you found the equation of sustainably happy life. You found what you're here to do. You found what some will call your dharmic path, your soul's purpose. You know, that's my equation. Beautiful, Zah. Okay, are we ready for a bit of a healing? Because that's what I feel like my episode with Shaman Jurek was. Or maybe it was more of a sermon. But what I remember most clearly is I barely spoke. And that's actually been a really big evolutionary leap for me as a host is understanding my role in the conversation because sometimes it's my role to provide a lot of inquiry and really extract the value from the teachers. Sometimes it's my role to relate. And sometimes it's my role just to shut the fuck up and <laughs> let the teachers teach, which I feel like is what happened with Shaman Jurek. His episode is another one that I received an incredible amount of feedback on. But the interesting thing about the feedback is it was a lot of the time just one word. Wow or the exploding brain emoji. <laughs> so I think it's safe to say that he left us a bit speechless. Here's my favorite part. It's the part where he challenged this entire career concept that we've created. I hope you enjoy hearing him again. Can we talk about... Um, I guess our power and our potential, we've, you've spoken about this kind of in different ways already, we've been raised in this culture where we tie career to purpose. How do we begin to unwind that bond or that thinking that what we do professionally is a measure of our worth and why we're here? How do we even begin to break that apart? Well, first you have to understand that the consciousness of evolution, the first seed of that consciousness is based in what we call singular polarity. Singular polarity versus dual polarity. Dual polarity is what it should be, which is very tribal-based in family cultures. When families are developing or they have children, they tend to take on what we call an authoritative role of you have to do this, 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 this in order to be rewarded, in order to be loved, in order to be seen, in order to be valued. And so the idea of growth is not subjective. It's um, coming from a place of where people are operating in this fear 
But if they don't meet the standards that is required by other people, they will be ostracized, disconnected, not loved, and thrown away from the tribe. So the fear inside of your being and all the microorganisms inside of your body are aware of this frequency, of this energy, because of singularity polarity. Because the dual aspect means that you are able to tell your parents or your authority figures that there is no authority. The only, the only measure of, of development is giving me the information so I can stay safe, but not invoking fear into me, not telling me what I'm capable of doing, what I can achieve, what is possible for me. And so therefore, you can also tell your parents or your guardians or whoever it is that they also have things that they should be looking at because it's causing disruption within the tribe. Because we didn't have that, we grow up looking at success from a place of what we achieve, what we have, what we can buy, how much we are able to create from the idea of material. So the validation from other people we look for. That's why social media has such a strong um, you know, grasp on, on humanity because human beings want to feel acknowledged. They want to be seen because seen is loved and love means you're part of the tribe. And so again, this energy creates a Discourse. So human beings actually believe they have a career. They create it in a very structural, disconnected way. I have a career. This is my career. No, this is not your career. There is no such thing as a career. This is all set up to compartmentalize your creative expression. If you continue to say, I have a career and this is what my career is, not only are you boxing yourself, you are taking away all of the multiple um, possibilities of what can be out of the equation. And you are separating yourself, which we call dissonance. You're dissoning yourself from the possibilities of many possibilities. And you're singly um, putting yourself in a box. And only that which is in the nucleus of that box can attract what you need in life. That's a problem. so juicy. There is so many more glorious teachers I could include in this 100th episode, not to mention the incredible creators and artists and designers and founders and influencers and even my friends that I've had on the show, but I'm going to leave us on one final teacher and that is the powerful and potent Tori Washington. And I wanted to end with Tori because she's actually the teacher I'm currently learning the most from and doing the most work with. I signed up to her House of We membership on the back of our honest conversation because her wisdom literally, it moved me to tears and she shifted something in my state and there's truly been no going back from that. So if you're ready to transcend what Tori describes as an inability to receive real and big money, I cannot recommend her membership enough. There's no affiliation. I don't even know if she knows I'm in the membership, but her teachings exist to help us get really excited about taking responsibility for our wealth and increasing our proximity to money and to get really clear on our wealth identity. And for me, it's been extremely confronting, but really rewarding work. So I decided to share the part of our conversation where I actually allowed myself to fully receive 
what she was giving in the moment. And I actually don't do this a lot when I'm recording. I think I used to do it a little bit in the beginning, but truthfully, I feel like an immense responsibility to hold space and especially for the teachers to give them a really clear and unobstructed place, I guess, to land their transmission and their wisdom. So I asked Tori how she readies and steadies herself to get up every single day and serve in the way that she does. And as you'll soon hear, it struck a chord in me because it made me think about you. I had that day today. I had a call after this and I messaged them and I said, today's not the day that I can do this. And this week's kind of been like that. Um, I feel like a rubber band. I've I've created this new edge and we've really stretched that rubber band and we're seeing, you know, when you stretch a rubber band, you start to see the chalkiness, like the different colors and layers. So I always remind my students that it's okay to stretch like that because then you see where you're, how far you're willing to go and how far you're not willing to go. And sometimes we need those points of feedback to decide, um, to decide what's going to happen in that chapter of our life. So my number one thing is my number one, number one, number one is do not make yourself wrong. Cause the minute you make yourself wrong, the minute everything else accompanies that you've got a whole peanut gallery in your head that's waiting for that moment so they can come in and take the stage and, and accompany that energy. So I really focus on my relationship with God and giving myself grace and prayer becomes a huge, I increase my appetite for prayer. I increase my proximity to God. I go vertical. Mm. And when you go vertical, Imagine if you're laying horizontal, you're kind of like seeing this way, you're going this way, you're seeing this way, you go vertical, you see what's right in front of me. What's right in front of me is a tree. What if I calibrated to the steadiness of a tree? Mm. What's right in front of me is rain. What if I calibrated to the rain effortlessly pouring into the earth? What if I calibrated to the wind? Where's God showing me life right in front of me? Where's God trying to teach me how to move? right now. But if I look at her or them and they're not holding the same thing I am, then I'm going to be going outside of myself. But there's always something in nature that I can sit and breathe with. And it brings me back to peace. And it brings me back to the deeper why. And it's giving myself permission to choose each day, you know, what I'm going to do and, and, and not make myself wrong if something needs to change. So like today when I move the call and, and I think that what feels good for me and that I love to teach my students is how to communicate that it, it often turns into a bigger problem when we don't know how to communicate it mm-hmm. and we just either push through or we don't show up how we want it, which brings in more self beat up or, We try to communicate it and we feel guilty, but I feel very confident in my communication. And so I'm able to clearly communicate, here's what's happening. Here's why I'm making this decision. And here's what you can count on from me going forward. Um, 
and I don't know why I'm being called to say this. Maybe it's I'm feeling your energy, but there's a flip where you're holding the big vision and you're holding all the people. And something that's occurred this year is what if the vision is so big so it can hold you? And what would your day look like if the vision held you, if the people held you and you showed up with that context? It's more vulnerable because there's more exposure there. Like right now, this whole conversation, you don't know how much you're holding me because my energy isn't how it usually is today. And now right now I'm holding you, I can feel. But then there was a moment where you're holding me and both of us are showing up because we committed to this. And we're letting the vision of this podcast hold us. And we don't know where we're going to go. And we don't know what we're going to talk about. But our guts are relaxing. And we're letting this podcast hold us. And in that, I always say, um, you'll never burn out when you give from God. Yeah. Just give from God and watch the world change. And that's what I do on the days where I don't have anything to give. I give from God. And I listen for that. So I'm just over here bawling in the background. <laughs> Maybe we can get this part on video. I, I'm like, I have my um, hands out like this. I'm like, I got you. <laughs> do you know, I'm at like, I don't know, 100 episodes. And that's saying nothing about nothing. But all week, I've just been anticipating you. Mm. I don't know, like. I think just knowing just how powerful you are. I think just knowing I was going to receive. Like I wasn't just going to interview or have a conversation. I feel like I think I knew I was going to. Yeah. And so there's a readiness, right, that comes with that. And And it's interesting, Allison, because. I was told not to cancel this, keep this, keep this. I felt it in the bathroom because I was thinking about it. Stephanie was feeling into me and she said, we know we're at capacity this year. Not in an, oh my God, burned out way, but we're just very clear on the channel and where it's meant to go. And I had messaged the call after this, who's with a good friend of mine and, and we have a beautiful connection. And then I specifically looked at this and I just Keep it, keep it, keep it. And yeah, I'm so glad you are. did because I had those feelings myself where I was like, like I I understand where you're at and I understand the shape of your week and what you give. And so it's not lost on me the saying yes initially and being able to get in a time before Christmas certainly, but mm-hmm. just this hope and prayer of my own that, yeah, don't cancel, don't cancel, you know, and when I saw your face pop up, I was like, yes, because, you know, sometimes I don't know, you know, mm-hmm. it's very rare that it happens now. But and I even said to my husband last night, because he's like, you're a bit off. I said, I'm a bit anxious about tomorrow. I'm like just anticipating something bigger than, you know, wow. what I usually get. So, yeah, <sighs> that's beautiful. Yeah. One hundred episodes. 
100 opportunities to serve you at your highest expression. I want to thank you for letting me and this work into your life. And I truly mean it when I say thank you for showing up every single time I publish an episode and pressing play. I adore you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Offline. Visit getoffline.co to find out more about my personal and professional development opportunities. And if you know someone who would benefit from listening to Offline, please share it with them. 